Good evening. Welcome to the Just Sleep Podcast. I'm Tasha, your host. Every week, I will read you an old story to help you relax, put the stressful day behind you, and drift off to sleep. Occasionally, we will run ads in order to cover the costs of the production of the podcast. Rest assured, there will be no ads during or after the story. If you prefer an ad-free and intro-free show, you can join Just Sleep Premium. Visit justsleeppodcast.com slash support for more information. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Tonight, listen to over three hours of fairy tales including listener favorites Thumbelina, The White Cat, and Cinderella. So lie down, close your eyes, and let me read you a story. Thumbelina, a story from Anderson's Fairy Tales by Hans Christian Anderson. There was once a woman who wished very much to have a child. 
she went to a fairy and said, I should so very much like to have a child. Can you tell me where I can find one? Well, that can be easily managed, said the fairy. Hair is a barleycorn. It is not exactly of the same sort as those which grow in the farmer's fields and which the chickens eat. Put it in a flower pot and see what will happen. Thank you, said the woman, and she gave the fairy twelve shillings, which was the price of the barleycorn. Then she went home and planted it, and immediately there grew up a large, handsome flower, somewhat like a tulip in appearance, but with its leaves tightly closed, as if it were still a bud. It is a beautiful flower, said the woman, and she kissed the red and golden-coloured petals. And as she did so, the flower opened, and she could see that it was a real tulip. But within the flower, upon the green velvet stamens, sat a very delicate and graceful little maiden. She was scarcely half as long as a thumb, and they gave her the name of Little Thumb, or Thumbelina, because she was so small. A walnut shell, elegantly polished, served her for a cradle. Her bed was formed of blue-violet leaves with a rose leaf for a counterpane. Here she slept at night, but during the day she amused herself on a table where the peasant wife had placed a plate full of water. Round this plate were wreaths of flowers with their stems in the water, and upon it floated a large tulip leaf which served the little one for a boat. Here she sat and rowed herself from side to side with two oars made of white horse hair. It was a very pretty sight. Thumbelina could also sing so softly and sweetly that nothing like her singing had ever before been heard. One night, while she lay in her pretty bed, a large, ugly, wet toad crept through a broken pane of glass in the window and leaped right upon the table where she lay sleeping under her rose-leaf quilt. What a pretty little wife this would make for my son, said the toad, and she took up the walnut shell in which Thumbelina lay asleep and jumped through the window with it into the garden. In the swampy margin of a broad stream in the garden lived the toad with her son. He was uglier even than his mother. And when he saw the pretty little maiden in her elegant bed, he could only cry, croak, croak, croak. Don't speak so loud or she will wake, said the toad, and then she might run away, for she is as light as swan's down. We will place her on one of the water lily leaves out in the stream. It will be like an island to her. She is so light and small, and then she cannot escape. And while she is away, we will make haste and prepare the stateroom under the marsh in which you are to live when you are married. Far out in the stream grew a number of water lilies with broad green leaves, which seemed to float on the top of the water. The largest of these leaves appeared further off than the rest, and the old toad swam out to it with the walnut shell in which Thumbelina still lay asleep. The tiny creature woke very early in the morning and began to cry bitterly 
when she found where she was, for she could see nothing but water on every side of the large green leaf, and no way of reaching the land. Meanwhile, the old toad was very busy under the marsh, decking her room with rushes and wild yellow flowers, to make it look pretty for her new daughter-in-law. Then she swam out with her ugly son to the leaf, on which she had placed poor Thumbelina. She wanted to bring the pretty bed, that she might put it in the bridal chamber, to be ready for her. The old toad bowed low to her in the water and said, Here is my son, he will be your husband, and you will live happily together in the marsh by the stream. Croak, 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 was all her son could say for himself. So the toad took up the elegant little bed and swam away with it, leaving Thumbelina all alone on the green leaf where she sat and wept. She could not bear to think of living with the old toad and having her ugly son for her husband. The little fishes, who swam about in the water beneath, had seen the toad and heard what she said. So now they lifted their heads above the water to look at the little maiden. As soon as they caught sight of her, they saw she was very pretty, and it vexed them to think that she must go and live with the ugly toads. No, it must never be. So they gathered together in the water, round the green stalk which held the leaf on which the little maiden stood, and gnawed it away at the root with their teeth. Then the leaf floated down the stream, carrying Thumbelina far away out of reach of land. Thumbelina sailed past many towns, and the little birds in the bushes saw her and sang. What a lovely little creature. So the leaf swam away with her further and further, till it brought her to other lands. A graceful little white butterfly constantly fluttered around her, and at last alighted on the leaf. The little maiden pleased him, and she was glad of it, for now the toad could not possibly reach her, and the country through which she sailed was beautiful, and the sun shone upon the water till it glittered like liquid gold. She took off her girdle and tied one end of it round the butterfly, fastening the other end of the ribbon to the leaf, which now glided on much faster than before, taking Thumbelina with it as she stood. Presently, a large beetle flew by. The moment he caught sight of her, he seized her round her delicate waist with his claws and flew with her into a tree. The green leaf floated away on the brook, and the butterfly flew with it for he was fastened to it and could not get away. Oh, how frightened Thumbelina felt when the beetle flew with her to the tree. But especially was she sorry for the beautiful white butterfly which she had fastened to the leaf, for if he could not free himself, he would die of hunger. But the beetle did not trouble himself at all about the matter. He seated himself by her side on a large green leaf gave her some honey from the flowers to eat, and told her she was very pretty, though not in the least like a beetle. After a time, all the beetles who lived in the tree came to pay Thumbelina a visit. They stared at her, and then the young lady beetles turned up their feelers and said, She has only two legs. How ugly that looks. She has no feelers, said another. Her waist is quite slim. 
she is like a human being. Oh, she is quite ugly, said all the lady beetles. The beetle who had run away with her believed all the others when they said she was ugly. He would have nothing more to say to her, and told her she might go where she liked. Then he flew down with her from the tree, and placed her on a daisy, and she wept at the thought that she was so ugly that even the beetles would have nothing to say to her. And all the while, she was really the loveliest creature that one could imagine, and as tender and delicate as a beautiful rose leaf. During the whole summer, poor little Thumbelina lived quite alone in the wide forest. She wove herself a bed with blades of grass and hung it up under a broad leaf to protect herself from the rain. She sucked the honey from the flowers for food and drank the dew from the leaves every morning. So passed away the summer and the autumn, and then came the winter, the long, cold winter. All the birds who had sung to her so sweetly had flown away, and the trees and the flowers had withered. The large shamrock, under the shelter of which she had lived, was now rolled together and shriveled up. Nothing remained but a yellow withered stalk. She felt dreadfully cold, for her clothes were torn, and she was herself so frail and delicate that she was nearly frozen to death. It began to snow too, and the snowflakes, as they fell upon her, were like a whole shovelful falling upon one of us, for we are tall, but she was only an inch high. She wrapped herself in a dry leaf, but it cracked in the middle and could not keep her warm, and she shivered with cold. Near the wood in which she had been living was a large cornfield, but the corn had been cut a long time. Nothing remained but the bare, dry stubble standing up out of the frozen ground. It was to her like struggling through a large wood. Oh, how she shivered with cold. She came at last to the door of a field mouse who had a little den under the corn stubble. There dwelt the field mouse in warmth and comfort, with a whole roomful of corn, a kitchen, and a beautiful dining room. Poor Thumbelina stood before the door, just like a little beggar girl, and asked for a small piece of barley corn, for she had been without a morsel to eat for days. You poor little creature, said the field mouse, for she was really a good old mouse. Come into my warm room and dine with me. She was pleased with Thumbelina, so she said, You are quite welcome to stay with me all winter if you like, but you must keep my rooms clean and neat and tell me stories, for I shall like to hear them very much. And Thumbelina did all that the field mouse asked her and found herself very comfortable. We shall have a visitor soon, said the field mouse one day. My neighbor pays me a visit once a week. He is better off than I am. He has large rooms and wears a beautiful black velvet coat. If you could only have him for a husband, you would be well provided for indeed. But he is blind, so you must tell him some of your prettiest stories. Thumbelina did not feel at all interested about this neighbor, for he was a mole. However, he came and paid his visit, dressed in his black velvet coat. He is very rich and learned and his house is twenty times larger than mine, said the field mouse. He was rich and learned, no doubt, 
but he always spoke slightingly of the sun and the pretty flowers, because he had never seen them. Thumbelina was obliged to sing to him, Lady Bird, Lady Bird, Fly Away Home, and many other pretty songs. And the mole fell in love with her, because she had so sweet a voice. But he said nothing yet, for he was very prudent and cautious. A short time before, the mole had dug a long passage under the earth, which led from the dwelling of the field mouse to his own, and here she had permission to walk with Thumbelina whenever she liked. But he warned them not to be alarmed at the sight of a dead bird which lay in the passage. It was a perfect bird, with a beak and feathers, and could not have been dead long. It was lying just where the mole had made his passage. The mole took in his mouth a piece of phosphorescent wood, and it glittered like fire in the dark. Then he went before them to light them through the long, dark passage. When they came to the spot where lay the dead bird, the mole pushed his broad nose through the ceiling, so that the earth gave way, and the daylight shone into the passage. In the middle of the floor lay a swallow, his beautiful wings pulled close to his sides, his feet and head drawn up under his feathers. The poor bird had evidently died of the cold. It made little Thumbelina very sad to see it. She did so love the little birds. All the summer they had sung and twittered for her so beautifully. But the mole pushed it aside with his crooked legs and said, He will sing no more now. How miserable it must be to be born a little bird. I am thankful that none of my children will ever be birds, for they can do nothing but cry, tweet, tweet, and must always die of hunger in the winter. Yes, you may well say that as a clever man, exclaimed the field mouse. What is the use of his twittering if when winter comes, he must either starve or be frozen to death? Still birds are very high-bred. Thumbelina said nothing, but when the two others had turned their backs upon the bird, she stooped down and stroked aside the soft feathers which covered his head and kissed the closed eyelids. Perhaps this was one who sang to me so sweetly in the summer, she said, and how much pleasure it gave me, you dear, pretty bird. The mole now stopped up the hole through which the daylight shone, and then accompanied the ladies home. But during the night, Thumbelina could not sleep. So she got out of bed and wove a large, beautiful carpet of hay. She carried it to the dead bird and spread it over him with some down from the flowers which she had found in the field mouse room. It was as soft as wool, and she spread some of it on each side of the bird so that he may lie warmly in the cold earth. Farewell, pretty little bird, said she. Farewell. Thank you for your delightful singing during the summer, when all the trees were green and the warm sun shone upon us. Then she laid her head on the bird's breast, but she was alarmed, for it seemed as if something inside the bird went thump-thump. It was the bird's heart. He was not really dead, only benumbed with the cold, and the warmth had restored him to life. In autumn, all the swallows fly away into the warm countries, but if one happens to linger, the cold seizes it, and it becomes frozen, and falls down as if dead. It remains where it fell, 
and the cold snow covers it. Thumbelina trembled very much. She was quite frightened, for the bird was large and a great deal larger than herself. She was only an inch high. But she took courage, laid the wool more thickly over the poor swallow, and then took a leaf which she had used for her own counterpane and laid it over his head. The next night she again stole out to see him. He was alive, but very weak. He could only open his eyes for a moment to look at Thumbelina, who stood by, holding a piece of decayed wood in her hand, for she had no other lantern. Thank you, pretty little maiden, said the sick swallow. I have been so nicely warmed that I shall soon regain my strength and be able to fly about again in the warm sunshine. Oh, said she, it is cold out of doors now. It snows and freezes. Stay in your warm bed. I will take care of you. She brought the swallow some water in a flower leaf, and after he had drank, he told her that he had wounded one of his wings in a thorn bush and could not fly as fast as the others, who were soon far away on their journey to warm countries. At last, he had fallen to the earth and could remember nothing more, nor how he came to be where she had found him. All winter, the swallow remained underground, and Thumbelina nursed him with care and love. She did not tell either the mole or the field mouse anything about it, for they did not like swallows. Very soon the springtime came, and the sun warmed the earth. Then the swallow bade farewell to Thumbelina, and she opened the hole in the ceiling which the mole had made. The sun shone in upon them so beautifully that the swallow asked her if she would go with him. She could sit on his back, he said, and he would fly away with her into the green woods. But she knew it would grieve the field mouse if she left her in that manner, so she said, No, I cannot. Farewell, then, farewell, you good, pretty little maiden, said the swallow. And he flew out into the sunshine. Thumbelina looked after him, and the tears rose in her eyes. She was very fond of the poor swallow. Tweet, tweet, sang the bird, as he flew out into the green woods, and Thumbelina felt very sad. She was not allowed to go out into the warm sunshine. The corn which had been sowed in the fields over the house of the field mouse had grown up high into the air and formed a thick wood to Thumbelina, who was only an inch in height. You are going to be married, little one, said the field mouse. My neighbor has asked for you. What good fortune for a poor child like you. Now we will prepare your wedding clothes. They must be woolen and linen. Nothing must be wanting when you are the wife of the mole. Thumbelita had to turn the spindle, and the field mouse hired four spiders who were to weave day and night. Every evening the mole visited her, and was continually speaking of the time when the summer would be over. Then he would keep his wedding day with Thumbelina. But now the heat of the sun was so great that it burned the earth and made it hard like stone. As soon as the summer was over, the wedding should take place. But Thumbelina was not at all pleased, for she did not like the tiresome mole. Every morning when the sun rose, and every evening when it went down, she would creep out of the door and as the wind blew aside the ears of corn so that she could see the blue sky, she thought how beautiful and bright it seemed out there. 
and wished so much to see her dear friend, the swallow, again. But he never returned, for by this time he had flown far away into the lovely green forest. When autumn arrived, Thumbelina had her outfit quite ready, and the field mouse said to her, In four weeks the wedding must take place. Then she wept and said she would not marry the disagreeable mole. Nonsense, replied the field mouse. Now don't be obstinate, or I shall bite you with my white teeth. He is a very handsome mole. The queen herself does not wear more beautiful velvets and furs. His kitchens and cellars are quite full. You ought to be very thankful for such good fortune. So the wedding day was fixed, in which the mole was to take her away to live with him, deep under the earth, and never again to see the warm sun, because he did not like it. The poor child was very unhappy at the thought of saying farewell to the beautiful sun, and, as the field mouse had given her permission to stand at the door, she went to look at it once more. Farewell, bright sun, she cried, stretching out her arm towards it, and then she walked a short distance from the house, for the corn had been cut, and only the dry stubble remained in the fields. Farewell, farewell, she repeated, twining her arm round a little red flower that grew just by her side. Greet the little swallow from me, if you should see him again. Tweet, tweet, sounded over her head suddenly. She looked up, and there was the swallow himself, flying close by. As soon as he spied Thumbelina, he was delighted. She told him how unwilling she was to marry the ugly mole, and to live always beneath the earth, never more to see the bright sun. And as she told him, she wept. Cold winter is coming, said the swallow, and I am going to fly away into warmer countries. Will you go with me? You can sit on my back and fasten yourself on with your sash. Then we can fly away from the ugly mole and his gloomy rooms, far away over the mountains into warmer countries where the sun shines more brilliantly than here, where it is always summer and the flowers bloom in greater beauty. Fly now with me, dear little one. You saved my life when I lay frozen in that dark, dreary passage. Yes, I will go with you, said Thumbelina, and she seated herself on the bird's back, with her feet on his outstretched wings, and tied her girdle to one of his strongest feathers. The swallow rose in the air and flew over forest and over sea, high above the highest mountains, covered with eternal snow. Thumbelina would have been frozen in the cold air, but she crept under the bird's warm flowers, keeping her little head uncovered, so that she might admire the beautiful lands over which they passed. At length they reached the warm countries, where the sun shines brightly, and the sky seems so much higher above the earth. Here, on the hedges, and by the wayside, grew purple, green, and white grapes. Lemons and oranges hung from the trees in the woods, and the air was fragrant with myrtles and orange blossoms. Beautiful children ran along the country lanes, playing with large gay butterflies, and as the swallow flew further and further, every place appeared still more lovely. At last they came to a blue lake, and by the side of it, shaded by trees of the deepest green, stood a palace of dazzling white marble, built in the olden times. Vines clustered round its lofty pillars, 
and at the top were many swallows' nests, and one of these was the home of the swallow who carried Thumbelina. This is my house, said the swallow, but it would not do for you to live here. You would not be comfortable. You must choose for yourself one of those lovely flowers, and I will put you down upon it, and then you shall have everything that you can wish to make you happy. That would be delightful, she said, and clapped her little hands for joy. A large marble pillar lay on the ground, which, in falling, had been broken into three pieces. Between these pieces grew the most beautiful large white flowers. So the swallow flew down with Thumbelina and placed her on one of the broad leaves. But how surprised she was to see, in the middle of the flower, a tiny little man, as white and transparent as if he had been made of crystal. He had a gold crown on his head and delicate wings at his shoulders and was not much larger than was she herself. He was the angel of the flower, for a tiny man and a tiny woman dwell in every flower, and this was the king of them all. Oh, how beautiful he is, whispered Thumbelina to the swallow. The little prince was at first quite frightened at the bird, who was like a giant, compared to such a delicate little creature as himself. But when he saw Thumbelina, he was delighted and thought her the prettiest little maiden he had ever seen. He took the gold crown from his head and placed it on hers and asked her name and if she would be his wife and queen over all the flowers. This certainly was a very different sort of husband from the son of a toad or the mole with his black velvet and fur. So she said yes to the handsome prince. Then all the flowers opened and out of each came a little lady or a tiny lord, all so pretty it was quite a pleasure to look at them. Each of them brought Thumbelina a present, but the best gift was a pair of beautiful wings, which had belonged to a large white fly, and they fastened them to Thumbelina's shoulders so that she might fly from flower to flower. Then there was much rejoicing, and the little swallow, who sat above them in his nest, was asked to sing a wedding song, which he did as well as he could, but in his heart he felt sad, for he was very fond of Thumbelina and would have liked to never part from her again. You must not be called Thumbelina any more, said the spirit of the flowers to her. It is an ugly name, and you are so very lovely. We will call you Maya. Farewell, farewell, said the swallow, with a heavy heart, as he left the warm countries to fly back into Denmark. There he had a nest over the window of a house in which dwelt the writer of fairy tales. The swallow sang, Tweet, tweet, and from his song came the whole story. The White Cat Collected in the Blue Fairy Book by Andrew Lang Once upon a time, there was a king who had three sons, who were all so clever and brave that he began to be afraid that they would want to reign over the kingdom before he was dead. Now the king, though he felt that he was growing old, did not at all wish to give up the government of his kingdom while he could still manage it very well. So he thought the best way to live in peace would be to divert the minds of his sons by promises which he could always get out of when the time came for keeping them. So he sent for them all, 
and after speaking to them kindly, he added, You will quite agree with me, my dear children, that my great age makes it impossible for me to look after my affairs of state as carefully as I once did. I begin to fear that this may affect the welfare of my subjects. Therefore, I wish that one of you should succeed to my crown. But in return for such a gift as this, it is only right that you should do something for me. Now as I think of retiring into the country, it seems to me that a pretty, lively, faithful little dog would be very good company for me. So, without any regard for your ages, I promise that the one who brings me the most beautiful little dog shall succeed me at once. The three princes were greatly surprised by their father's sudden fancy for a little dog. But, as it gave the two youngest ones a chance they would not otherwise have had of being king, and, as the eldest was too polite to make any objection, they accepted the commission with pleasure. They bade farewell to the king, who gave them presents of silver and precious stones, and appointed to meet them at the same hour, in the same place, after a year had passed, to see the little dogs they had brought for him. Then they went together to a castle, which was about a league from the city, accompanied by all their particular friends, to whom they gave a great banquet, and the three brothers promised to be friends always, to share whatever good fortune befell them, and not to be parted by any envy or jealousy. And so they set out, agreeing to meet at the same castle at the appointed time to present themselves before the king together. Each one took a different road, and the two eldest met with many adventures, but it is about the youngest that you are going to hear. He was young and handsome, and knew everything that a prince ought to know, and as for his courage, there was simply no end to it. Hardly a day passed without his buying several dogs, big and little, greyhounds, mastiffs, spaniels and lapdogs. As soon as he had bought a pretty one, he was sure to see it still prettier, and then he had to get rid of all the others and buy that one, as being alone, he found it impossible to take thirty or forty thousand dogs about with him. He journeyed from day to day, not knowing where he was going, until at last, just at nightfall, he reached a great gloomy forest. He did not know his way, and, to make matters worse, it began to thunder and the rain poured down. He took the first path he could find, and after walking for a long time, he fancied he saw a faint light, and began to hope that he was coming to some cottage where he might find shelter for the night. At length, guided by the light, he reached the door of the most splendid castle he could have imagined. This door was of gold, covered with carbuncles, and it was the pure red light which shone from them that had shown him the way through the forest. The walls were of the finest porcelain and all the most delicate colours, and the prince saw that all the stories he had ever read were pictured upon them. But as he was terribly wet, and the rain still fell in torrents, he could not stay to look about any more, but came back to the golden door. There he saw Adair's foot hanging by a chain of diamonds. 
and he began to wonder who could live in this magnificent castle. They must feel very secure against robbers, he said to himself. What is to hinder anyone from cutting off that chain and digging out those carbuncles and making himself rich for life? He pulled the deer's foot, and immediately a silver bell sounded, and the door flew open. But the prince could see nothing but numbers of hands in the air, each holding a torch. He was so much surprised that he stood quite still, until he felt himself pushed forward by other hands, so that, though he was somewhat uneasy, he could not help going on. With his hand on his sword, to be prepared for whatever might happen, he entered a hall paved with lapis lazuli, while two lovely voices sang, The hands you see floating above will swiftly your bidding obey. If your heart dreads not conquering love, in this place you may fearlessly stay. The prince could not believe that any danger threatened him when he was welcomed in this way. So guided by the mysterious hands, he went toward a door of coral, which opened of its own accord, and he found himself in a vast hall of mother of pearl, out of which opened a number of other rooms, glittering with thousands of lights, and full of such beautiful pictures and precious things, that the prince felt quite bewildered. After passing through sixty rooms, the hands that conducted him stopped, and the prince saw a most comfortable-looking armchair drawn up close to the chimney corner. At the same moment, the fire lighted itself, and the pretty, soft, clever hands took off the prince's wet, muddy clothes and presented him with fresh ones made of the richest stuffs, all embroidered with gold and emeralds. He could not help admiring everything he saw, and the deft way in which the hands waited on him, though they sometimes appeared so suddenly that they made him jump. When he was quite ready, and I can assure you that he looked very different from the wet and weary prince who had stood outside in the rain and pulled the deer's foot, the hands led him to a splendid room, upon the walls of which were painted the histories of Puss in Boots and a number of other famous cats. A table was laid for supper with two golden plates and golden spoons and forks, and the sideboard was covered with dishes and crystals set with precious stones. The prince was wondering who the second place could be for, when suddenly in came about a dozen cats carrying guitars and rolls of music, who took their places at one end of the room, and under the direction of a cat who beat time with a roll of paper, began to mew in every imaginable key, and to draw their claws across the strings of the guitars, making the strangest kind of music that could be heard. The prince hastily stopped up his ears, but even then the sight of these comical musicians sent him into fits of laughter. What funny thing shall I see next, he said to himself, and instantly the door opened, and in came a tiny figure covered by a long black veil. It was conducted by two cats wearing black mantles and carrying swords, and a large party of cats followed, who brought in cages full of rats and mice. The prince was so much astonished that he thought he must be dreaming, but the little figure came up to him and threw back its veil, and he saw that it was the loveliest little white cat 
is possible to imagine. She looked very young and very sad, and in a sweet little voice that went straight to his heart, she said to the prince, King's son, you are welcome. The queen of the cats is glad to see you. Lady Cat, replied the prince, I thank you for receiving me so kindly, but surely you are no ordinary cat. Indeed, the way you speak and the magnificence of your castle prove it plainly. King's son, said the white cat, I beg you to spare me these compliments, for I'm not used to them. But now, she added, let dinner be served, and let the musicians be silent, as the prince does not understand what they are saying. So the mysterious hands began to bring in the supper, and at first they put on the table two dishes, one containing stewed pigeons, and the other a fricassee of fat mice. The sight of the latter made the prince feel as if he could not enjoy his supper at all. But the white cat, seeing this, assured him that the dishes intended for him were prepared in a separate kitchen, and he might be quite certain that they contained neither rats nor mice. And the prince felt so sure that she would not deceive him that he had no more hesitation in beginning. Presently, he noticed that on the little paw that was next to him, the white cat wore a bracelet containing a portrait, and he begged to be allowed to look at it. To his great surprise, he found it represented an extremely handsome young man, who was so like himself that it might have been his own portrait. The white cat sighed as he looked at it, and seemed sadder than ever, and the prince dared not ask any questions for fear of displeasing her. So he began to talk about other things, and found that she was interested in all the subjects he cared for himself, and seemed to know quite well what was going on in the world. After supper, they went into another room, which was fitted up as a theatre, and the cats acted and danced for their amusement. And then the white cat said goodnight to him, and the hands conducted him into a room he had not seen before, hung with tapestry worked with butterfly wings of every colour. There were mirrors that reached from the ceiling to the floor, and a little white bed with curtains of gauze tied up with ribbons. The prince went to bed in silence, as he did not quite know how to begin a conversation with the hands that waited on him, and in the morning he was awakened by a noise and confusion outside his window, and the hands came and quickly dressed him in a hunting costume. When he looked out, all the cats were assembled in the courtyard, some leading greyhounds, some blowing horns, for the white cat was going out hunting. The hands led a wooden horse up to the prince and seemed to expect him to mount it, at which he was very indignant, but it was no use for him to object, for he speedily found himself upon its back, and it pranced off with him. The white cat herself was riding a monkey, which climbed even up to the eagle's nests when she had a fancy for the young eaglets. Never was there a pleasanter hunting party, and when they returned to the castle, the prince and the white cat supped together as before. But when they had finished, she offered him a crystal goblet, which must have contained a magic draught, for as soon as he had swallowed its contents, he forgot everything, even the little dog that he was seeking for the king, and only thought how happy he was to be with the white cat. And so the days passed in every kind of amusement until the year was nearly gone.
The prince had forgotten all about meeting his brothers. He did not even know what country he belonged to. But the white cat knew when he ought to go back. And one day she said to him, Do you know that you only have three days left to look for the little dog for your father? And your brothers have found lovely ones? Then the prince suddenly recovered his memory and said, What can have made me forget such an important thing? My whole fortune depends upon it. And even if I could in such a short time find a dog pretty enough to gain me a kingdom, where should I find a horse who could carry me all that way in three days? And he began to be very vexed. But the white cat said to him, King's son, do not trouble yourself. I am your friend and will make everything easy for you. You can still stay here for a day, as the good wooden horse can take you to your country in twelve hours. I thank you, beautiful cat, said the prince. But what good will it do me to get back if I have not a dog to take to my father? See here, answered the white cat, holding up an acorn. There is a prettier one in this than in the dog star. Oh, white cat, dear, said the prince. How unkind you are to laugh at me now. Only listen, she said, holding the acorn to his ear. And inside it, he distinctly heard a tiny voice say bow wow. The prince was delighted, for a dog that can be shut up in an acorn must be very small indeed. He wanted to take it out and look at it, but the white cat said it would be better not to open the acorn till he was before the king, in case the tiny dog should be cold on the journey. He thanked her a thousand times and said goodbye quite sadly when the time came for him to set out. The days have passed so quickly with you, he said. I only wish I could take you with me now. But the white cat shook her head and sighed deeply in answer. After all, the prince was the first to arrive at the castle where he'd agreed to meet his brothers. But they came soon after and stared in amazement when they saw the wooden horse in the courtyard jumping like a hunter. The prince met them joyfully, and they began to tell him of all their adventures, but he managed to hide from them what he had been doing, and even led them to think that a turnspit dog, which he had with him, was the one he was bringing for the king. Fond as they were of one another, the two eldest could not help being glad to think that their dogs certainly had a better chance. The next morning they started in the same chariot. The elder brothers carried in baskets two such tiny, fragile dogs that they hardly dared to touch them. As for the turnspit, he ran after the chariot and got so covered with mud that one could hardly see what he was like at all. When they reached the palace, everyone crowded round to welcome them as they went into the king's great hall. And when the two brothers presented the little dogs, nobody could decide which was prettier. They were already arranging between themselves to share the kingdom equally when the youngest stepped forward, drawing from his pocket the acorn the white cat had given him. He opened it quickly, and there, upon a white cushion, they saw a dog so small that it could easily have been put through a ring. The prince laid it upon the ground, and it got up at once and began to dance. The king did not know what to say, for it was impossible that anything could be prettier than this little creature. Nevertheless, as he was in no hurry to part with his crown, he told his sons that, as they had been so successful the first time, he would ask them to go out once again, 
and seek by land and sea for a piece of muslin so fine that it could be drawn through the eye of a needle. The brothers were not very willing to set out again, but the two eldest consented because it gave them another chance, and they started as before. The youngest again mounted the wooden horse and rode back at full speed to his beloved white cat. Every door of the castle stood open, and every window and turret was illuminated, so it looked more wonderful than before. The hands hastened to meet him and led the wooden horse off to the stable while he hurried in to find the white cat. She was asleep in a little basket on a white satin cushion, but she very soon started up when she heard the prince and was overjoyed at seeing him once more. How could I hope that you would come back to me, king's son, she said, and then he stroked and petted her and told her of his successful journey and how he had come back to ask her help as he believed that it was impossible to find what the king demanded. The white cat looked serious, and she said she must think what was to be done, but that, luckily, there were some cats in the castle who could spin very well, and if anybody could manage it, they could, and she would set them the task herself. And then the hands appeared carrying torches, and conducted the prince and the white cat to a long gallery which overlooked the river, from the windows of which they saw a magnificent display of fireworks of all sorts, after which they had supper, which the prince liked even better than the fireworks, for it was very late, and he was hungry after his long ride. And so the days passed quickly as before. It was impossible to feel dull with the white cat, and she had quite a talent for inventing new amusements. Indeed, she was cleverer than a cat has any right to be. But when the prince asked her how it was that she was so wise, she only said, King's son, do not ask me. Guess what you please. I may not tell you anything. The prince was so happy that he did not trouble himself at all about the time. But presently, the white cat told him that the year was gone and that he need not be at all anxious about the muslin as they made it very well. This time, she added, I can give you a suitable escort and on looking out into the courtyard, the prince saw a superb chariot of burnished gold, enameled in flame colour with a thousand different devices. It was drawn by twelve snow-white horses, harnessed four abreast. Their trappings were flame-coloured velvet, embroidered with diamonds. A hundred chariots followed, each drawn by eight horses, and filled with officers in splendid uniforms, and a thousand guards surrounded the procession. Go, said the white cat, and when you appear before the king in such state, he surely will not refuse you the crown which you deserve. Take this walnut, but do not open it until you are before him. Then you will find in it the piece of stuff you asked me for. Lovely Blanchette, said the prince, how can I thank you properly for all your kindness to me? Only tell me that you wish it, and I will give up forever all thought of being king and will stay here with you always. King's son, she replied, it shows the goodness of your heart that you should care so much for a little white cat who is good for nothing but to catch mice, but you must not stay. So the prince kissed her little paw and set out. You can imagine how fast he travelled when I tell you that they reached the king's palace in just half the time it had taken the wooden horse to get there. This time the prince was so late 
and he did not try to meet his brothers at their castle. So they thought he could not be coming, and were rather glad of it, and displayed their pieces of muslin to the king proudly, feeling sure of success. And indeed, the stuff was very fine, and would go through the eye of a very large needle. But the king, who was only too glad to make a difficulty, sent for a particular needle, which was kept among the crown jewels, and had such a small eye that everybody saw at once that it was impossible that the muslin should pass through it. The princes were angry, and were beginning to complain that it was a trick, when suddenly the trumpet sounded, and the youngest prince came in. His father and brothers were quite astonished at his magnificence, and after he had greeted them, he took the walnut from his pocket and opened it, fully expecting to find the piece of muslin. But instead, there was only a hazelnut. He cracked it, and there lay a cherry stone. Everybody was looking on, and the king was chuckling to himself at the idea of finding the piece of muslin in a nutshell. However, the prince cracked the cherry stone, but everyone laughed when he saw it contained only its own kernel. He opened that and found a grain of wheat, and in that was a millet seed. Then he himself began to wonder and muttered softly, White cat, white cat, are you making fun of me? In an instant he felt a cat's claw give his hand quite a sharp scratch, and hoping that it was meant as an encouragement, he opened the millet seed and drew out of it a piece of muslin four hundred ells long, woven with the loveliest colours and most wonderful patterns. And when the needle was brought, it went through the eyes six times with the greatest ease. The king turned pale, and the other princes stood silent and sorrowful, for nobody could deny that this was the most marvellous piece of muslin that was to be found in the world. Presently, the king turned to his sons and said with a deep sigh, Nothing could console me more in my old age than to realize your willingness to gratify my wishes. Go then once more, and whoever at the end of a year can bring back the loveliest princess shall be married to her, and shall, without further delay, receive the crown, for my successor must certainly be married. Prince considered that he had earned the kingdom fairly twice over, but still, he was too well-bred to argue about it, so he just went back to his gorgeous chariot and, surrounded by his escort, returned to the white cat faster than he had come. This time she was expecting him. The path was strewn with flowers, and a thousand braziers were burning scented woods which perfumed the air. Seated in a gallery from which she could see his arrival, the white cat waited for him. Well, king's son, she said. Here you are once more, without a crown. Madam, said he, thanks to your generosity, I have earned one twice over. But the fact is that my father is so loath to part with it, that it would be no pleasure to me to take it. Never mind, she answered. It's just as well to try and deserve it, as you must take back a lovely princess with you. Next time I will be on the lookout for one for you. In the meantime, let us enjoy ourselves. Tonight I have ordered a battle between my cats and the river rats on purpose to amuse you. So this year slipped away even more pleasantly than the preceding ones. Sometimes the prince could not help asking the white cat how it was she could talk. Perhaps you are a fairy, he said, or has some enchanter changed you into a cat? 
but she only gave him answers that told him nothing. Days go by so quickly when one is very happy that it is certain the prince would never have thought of its being time to go back. When one evening, as they sat together, the white cat said to him that if he wanted to take a lovely princess home with him the next day, he must be prepared to do what she told him. Take this sword, she said, and cut off my head. I, cried the prince, I cut off your head? Blanchette, darling, how could I do it? I entreat you to do as I tell you, king's son, she replied. The tears came into the prince's eyes as he begged her to ask him anything but that. To set him any task she pleased as proof of his devotion, but to spare him the grief of killing his dear cat. But nothing he could say altered her determination, and at last he drew his sword and desperately, with a trembling hand, cut off the little white head. But imagine his astonishment and delight when suddenly a lovely princess stood before him, and while he was still speechless with amazement, the door opened and a goodly company of knights and ladies entered, each carrying a cat's skin. They hastened with every sign of joy to the princess, kissing her hand and congratulating her on being once more restored to her natural shape. She received them graciously, but after a few minutes begged that they would leave her alone with the prince, to whom she said, You see, prince, that you were right in supposing me to be no ordinary cat. My father reigned over six kingdoms. The queen, my mother, whom he loved dearly, had a passion for traveling and exploring, and when I was only a few weeks old, she obtained permission to visit a certain mountain of which she had heard many marvelous tales and set out, taking with her a number of her attendants. On the way, they had to pass near an old castle belonging to the fairies. Nobody had ever been into it, but it was reported to be full of the most wonderful things, and my mother remembered to have heard that the fairies had in their garden such fruits as were to be seen and tasted nowhere else. She began to wish to try them for herself, and turned her steps in the direction of the garden. On arriving at the door, which blazed with gold and jewels, she ordered her servants to knock loudly, but it was useless. It seemed as if all the inhabitants of the castle must be asleep. Now, the more difficult it became to obtain the fruit, the more the queen was determined that she would have it. So she ordered that they should bring ladders and get over the wall into the garden. But though the wall did not look very high, and they tied the ladders together to make them very long, it was quite impossible to get to the top. The queen was in despair, but as night was coming on, she ordered that they should encamp just where they were and went to bed herself, feeling quite ill. She was so disappointed. In the middle of the night, she was suddenly awakened and saw to her surprise a tiny, ugly old woman seated by her bedside who said to her, I must say that we consider it somewhat troublesome of your majesty to insist upon tasting our fruit. But to save you any annoyance, my sisters and I will consent to give you as much as you can carry away on one condition. That is, that you shall give us your little daughter to bring up as our own. Dear madam, cried the queen, is there anything else you will take for the fruit? I will give you my kingdoms willingly. No, replied the old fairy, we will have nothing but your little daughter 
she will be as happy as the day is long, and we will give her everything that is worth having in fairyland, but you must not see her again until she is married. Though it is a hard condition, said the queen, I consent, for I shall certainly die if I do not taste the fruit, and so I should lose my little daughter either way. So the old fairy led her into the castle, and though it was still the middle of the night, the queen could see plainly that it was far more beautiful than she had been told. Which you can easily believe, prince, said the white cat, when I tell you that it was this castle that we are now in. Will you gather the fruit yourself, queen? said the old fairy, or shall I call it to come to you? I beg you to let me see it come when it is called, cried the queen. That would be something quite new. The old fairy whistled twice. Then she cried, apricots, peaches, nectarines, cherries, plums, pears, melons, grapes, apples, oranges, lemons, gooseberries, strawberries, raspberries, come. And in an instant they came tumbling in, one over another, and yet they were neither dusty nor spoiled, and the queen found them quite as good as she had fancied them. You see, they grew upon fairy trees. The old fairy gave her golden baskets in which to take the fruit away, and it was as much as four hundred mules could carry. Then she reminded the queen of her agreement and led her back to the camp, and next morning she went back to her kingdom. But before she had gone very far, she began to repent of her bargain. And when the king came out to meet her, she looked so sad that he guessed that something had happened and asked what was the matter. At first the queen was afraid to tell him, but when, as soon as they reached the palace, five frightful little dwarfs were sent by the fairies to fetch me, she was obliged to confess what she had promised. The king was very angry, and had the queen and myself shut up in a great tower and safely guarded, and drove the little dwarfs out of his kingdom. But the fairies sent a great dragon, who ate up all the people he met, and whose breath burnt up everything as he passed through the country. And at last, after trying in vain to rid himself of this monster, the king, to save his subjects, was obliged to consent that I should be given up to the fairies. This time they came themselves to fetch me, in a chariot of pearl drawn by seahorses, followed by the dragon, who was led with chains of diamonds. My cradle was placed between the old fairies, who loaded me with caresses, and away we whirled through the air to a tower which they had built on purpose for me. There I grew up surrounded with everything that was beautiful and rare, and learning everything that is ever taught to a princess, but without any companions but a parrot and a little dog who could both talk, and receiving every day a visit from one of the old fairies who came mounted upon the dragon. One day, however, as I sat at my window, I saw a handsome young prince who seemed to have been hunting in the forest which surrounded my prison and who was standing and looking up at me. When he saw that I observed him, he saluted me with great deference. You can imagine that I was delighted to have someone new to talk to, and in spite of the height of my window, our conversation was prolonged till nightfall. Then my prince reluctantly bade me farewell. But after that he came many times, and at last I consented to marry him. But the question was how I was to escape from my tower. The fairies always supplied me with flax for my spinning, and by great diligence I made enough cord for a ladder that would reach to the foot of the tower. But alas, 
just as my prince was helping me to descend it, the crossest and ugliest of the old fairies flew in. Before he had time to defend himself, my unhappy lover was swallowed up by the dragon. As for me, the fairies, furious at having their plans defeated, for they intended me to marry the king of the dwarfs, and I utterly refused, changed me into a white cat. When they brought me here, I found all the lords and ladies of my father's court awaiting me under the same enchantment, while the people of lesser rank had been made invisible, all but their hands. As they laid me under the enchantment, the fairies told me all my history, for until then I had quite believed that I was their child, and they warned me that my only chance of regaining my natural form was to win the love of a prince who resembled in every way my unfortunate lover. And you have won it, lovely princess, interrupted the prince. You are indeed wonderfully like him, resumed the princess, in voice and features and everything, and if you really love me, all my troubles will be at an end. And mine too, cried the prince, throwing himself at her feet, if you will consent to marry me. I love you already better than anyone in the world, she said, but now it is time to go back to your father, and we shall hear what he says about it. So the prince gave her his hand and let her out, and they mounted the chariot together. It was even more splendid than before, and so was the whole company. Even the horse's shoes were of rubies with diamond nails, and I suppose that is the first time such a thing was ever seen. As the princess was as kind and clever as she was beautiful, you can imagine what a delightful journey the prince found it, for everything the princess said seemed to him quite charming. When they came near the castle where the brothers were to meet, the princess got into a chair carried by four of the guards. It was hewn out of one splendid crystal and had silken curtains, which she drew round her that she might not be seen. The prince saw his brothers walking upon the terrace, each with a lovely princess, and they came to meet him, asking him if he had also found a wife. He said that he had found something much rarer, a white cat, at which they laughed very much, and asked him if he was afraid of being eaten up by mice in the palace. And then they set out together for the town. Each prince and princess rode in a splendid carriage. The horses were decked with plumes of feathers and glittered with gold. After them came the youngest prince, and last of all the crystal chair, at which everybody looked with admiration and curiosity. When the courtiers saw them coming, they hastened to tell the king. Are the ladies beautiful? he asked anxiously. And when they answered that nobody had ever before seen such lovely princesses, he seemed quite annoyed. However, he received them graciously, but found it impossible to choose between them. Then turning to his youngest son, he said, Have you come back alone after all? Your majesty, replied the prince, you will find in that crystal chair a little white cat, which has such soft paws and mews so prettily that I am sure you will be charmed with it. The king smiled and went to draw back the curtains himself, but at a touch from the princess, the crystal shivered into a thousand splinters, and there she stood in all her beauty. Her hair floated over her shoulders and was crowned with flowers, and her softly falling robe was of purest white. She saluted the king gracefully while a murmur of admiration rose from all round. Sire, she said, I am not come to deprive you of the throne you fill so worthily. I have already six kingdoms. Permit me to bestow one upon you and upon each of your sons. 
I ask nothing but your friendship and your consent to my marriage with your youngest son. We shall still have three kingdoms left for ourselves. The king and all the courtiers could not conceal their joy and astonishment, and the marriage of the three princes was celebrated at once. The festivities lasted several months, and then each king and queen departed to their own kingdom and lived happily ever after. A Japanese fairy tale The Bamboo Cutter and the Moon Child. Long, long ago, there lived an old bamboo woodcutter. He was very poor and sad also, for no child had heaven sent to cheer his old age, and in his heart there was no hope of rest from work till he died. Every morning he went forth into the woods and hills, wherever the bamboo reared its lithe green plumes against the sky. When he had made his choice, he would cut down these feathers of the forest, and splitting them lengthwise, or cutting them into joints, would carry the bamboo home and make it into various articles for the household. And he and his old wife gained a small livelihood by selling them. One morning, as usual, he had gone out to his work, and having found a nice clump of bamboos, had set to work to cut some of them down. Suddenly, the green grove of bamboos was flooded with a bright, soft light, as if the full moon had risen over the spot. Looking round in astonishment, he saw that the brilliance was streaming from one bamboo. The old man, full of wonder, dropped his axe and went towards the light. On nearer approach, he saw that this soft splendor came from a hollow in the green bamboo stem, and still more wonderful to behold. In the midst of the brilliance stood a tiny human being, only three inches in height, and exquisitely beautiful in appearance. You must be sent to be my child, for I find you here among the bamboos where lies my daily work, said the old man, and taking the little creature in his hand, he took it home to his wife to bring up. The tiny girl was so exceedingly beautiful and so small, but the old woman put her into a basket to safeguard her from the least possibility of being hurt in any way. The old couple were now very happy, for it had been a lifelong regret that they had no children of their own, and with joy they now expended all of the love of their old age on the little child who had come to them in so marvellous a manner. From this time on, the old man often found gold in the notches of the bamboos when he hewed them down and cut them up. Not only gold, but precious stones also, so that by degrees he became rich. He built himself a fine house and was no longer known as the poor bamboo woodcutter, but as a wealthy man. Three months passed quickly away, and in that time the bamboo child had, wonderful to say, become a full-grown girl. So her foster parents did up her hair and dressed her in beautiful kimonos. She was of such wondrous beauty that they placed her behind the screens like a princess and allowed no one to see her, waiting upon her themselves. It seemed as if she were made of light, for the house was filled with a soft shining, so that even in the dark of night it was like daytime. 
her presence seemed to have a benign influence on those there. Whenever the old man felt sad, he had only to look upon his foster daughter, and his sorrow vanished, and he became as happy as when he was a youth. At last, the day came for the naming of their newfound child, so the old couple called in a celebrated name-giver, and he gave her the name of Princess Moonlight, because her body gave forth so much bright, soft light that she might have been a daughter of the moon god. For three days the festival was kept up with song and dance and music. All the friends and relations of the old couple were present, and great was their enjoyment of the festivities held to celebrate the naming of Princess Moonlight. Everyone who saw her declared that never had there been anyone so lovely, and all the beauties throughout the length and breadth of the land would grow pale beside her, so they said. The fame of the princess's loveliness spread far and wide, and many were the suitors who desired to win her hand, or even so much as to see her. Suitors from far and near posted themselves outside the house and made little holes in the fence in the hope of catching a glimpse of the princess as she went from one room to another along the veranda. They stayed there day and night, sacrificing even their sleep for a chance of seeing her, but all in vain. Then they approached the house and tried to speak to the old man and his wife or some of the servants, but not even this was granted them. Still, in spite of all this disappointment, they stayed on, day after day and night after night, and counted it as nothing, so great was their desire to see the princess. At last, however, most of the men, seeing how hopeless their quest was, lost heart and hope both, and returned to their homes. All except five knights, whose ardour and determination, instead of waning, seemed to wax greater with the obstacles. These five men even went without their meals, and took snatches of whatever they could get brought to them, so that they might always stand outside of the dwelling. They stood there in all weathers, in sunshine and in rain. Sometimes they wrote letters to the princess, but no answer was vouchsafed to them. Then when letters failed to draw any reply, they wrote poems to her, telling her of the hopeless love which kept them from sleep, from food, from rest, and even from their homes. Still, Princess Moonlight gave no sign of having received their verses. In this hopeless state, the winter passed. The snow and frost and the cold winds gradually gave place to the gentle warmth of spring. Then the summer came, and the sun burned white and scorching in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And still these faithful nights kept watch and waited. At the end of these long months they called out to the old bamboo cutter and entreated him to have some mercy upon them and to show them the princess. But he answered only, as he was not her real father, he could not insist on her obeying him against her wishes. The five knights, on receiving this stern answer, returned to their several homes and pondered over the best means of touching the proud princess's heart, even so much as to grant them a herring. They took their rosaries in hand and knelt before their household shrines and burned precious incense, praying to Buddha to give them their heart's desire. 
Thus, several days passed, but even so, they could not rest in their homes. So again they set out for the bamboo cutter's house. This time, the old man came out to see them, and they asked him to let them know if it was the princess's resolution never to see any man whatsoever, and they implored him to speak for them and to tell her the greatness of their love and how long they had waited through the cold of the winter and the heat of the summer, sleepless and roofless through all weathers, without food, without rest, in the ardent hope of winning her. And they were willing to consider this long vigil as pleasure if she would but give them one chance of pleading their case with her. The old man lent a willing air to their tale of love, for in his inmost heart he felt sorry for these faithful suitors and would have liked to see his lovely foster daughter married to one of them. So he went in to Princess Moonlight and said reverently, Although you have always seemed to me to be a heavenly being, yet I have had the trouble of bringing you up as my own child, and you have been glad of the protection of my roof. Will you refuse to do as I wish? Then Princess Moonlight replied that there was nothing she would not do for him, that she honoured and loved him as her own father, and that as for herself, she could not remember the time before she came to earth. The old man listened with great joy as she spoke these dutiful words. Then he told her how anxious he was to see her safely and happily married before he died. I'm an old man over seventy years of age, and my end may come any time now. It is necessary and right that you should see these five suitors and choose one of them. Oh, why, said the princess in distress, must I do this? I have no wish to marry now. I found you, answered the old man, many years ago, when you were a little creature three inches high, in the midst of a great white light. The light streamed from the bamboo in which you were hid and led me to you. So I've always thought that you were more than a mortal woman. While I'm alive, it is right for you to remain as you are, if you wish to do so. But some day I shall cease to be, and who will take care of you then? Therefore, I pray you to meet these five brave men one at a time, and make up your mind to marry one of them. Then the princess answered, that she felt sure that she was not as beautiful as perhaps reports made her out to be, and that even if she consented to marry any one of them, not really knowing her before, his heart might change afterwards. So she did not feel sure of them, even though her father told her they were worthy knights. She did not feel it wise to see them. All you say is very reasonable, said the old man, but what kind of men will you consent to see? I do not call these five men who have waited on you for months light-hearted. They have stood outside this house through the winter and the summer, often denying themselves food and sleep, so that they may win you. What more can you demand? Then Princess Moonlight said she must make further trial of their love before she would grant their request to interview her. The five warriors were to prove their love by each bringing her from distant countries something that she desired to possess. That same evening, the suitors arrived and began to play their flutes in turn and to sing their self-composed songs, telling of their great and tireless love. The bamboo cutter went out to them 
and offered them his sympathy for all they had endured and all the patience they had shown in their desire to win his foster daughter. Then he gave them her message, that she would consent to marry whosoever was successful in bringing her what she wanted. This was to test them. The five all accepted the trial and thought it an excellent plan, for it would prevent jealousy between them. Princess Moonlight then sent word to the first knight that she requested him to bring her the stone bowl which had belonged to Buddha in India. The second knight was asked to go to the mountain of Harai, said to be situated in the eastern sea, and to bring her a branch of the wonderful tree that grew on its summit. The roots of this tree were of silver, the trunk of gold, and the branches bore as fruit white jewels. The third knight was to go to China and search for the fire rat and to bring her its skin. The fourth knight was told to search for the dragon that carried on its head the stone radiating five colors and to bring the stone to her. The fifth knight was to find the swallow which carried a shell in its stomach and to bring the shell to her. The old man thought these very hard tasks and hesitated to carry the messages, but the princess would make no other conditions. So her commands were issued, word for word, to the five men who, when they heard what was required of them, were all disheartened and disgusted at what seemed to them the impossibility of the tasks given them, and returned to their own homes in despair. But after a time, when they thought of the princess, the love in their hearts revived for her, and they resolved to make an attempt to get what she desired of them. The first night sent word to the princess that he was starting out that day on the quest of Buddha's bowl, and he hoped soon to bring it to her. But he had not the courage to go all the way to India, for in those days travelling was very difficult and full of danger. So he went to one of the temples in Kyoto and took a stone bowl from the altar there, paying the priest a large sum of money for it. Then he wrapped it in a cloth of gold, and waiting quietly for three years, returned and carried it to the old man. Princess Moonlight wondered that the knight should have returned so soon. She took the bowl from its gold wrapping, expecting it to make the room full of light, but it did not shine at all so she knew that it was a sham thing and not the true bowl of Buddha. She returned it at once and refused to see him. The knight threw the bowl away and returned to his home in despair. He gave up now all hopes of ever winning the princess. The second knight told his parents that he needed change of air for his health, for he was ashamed to tell them that love for the princess Moonlight was the real cause of his leaving them. He then left his home, at the same time sending word to the princess that he was setting out for Mount Harai in the hope of getting a branch of the gold and silver tree which she so wished to have. He only allowed his servants to accompany him halfway and then sent them back. He reached the seashore and embarked in a small ship and after sailing away for three days he landed and employed several carpenters to build him a house contrived in such a way that no one could get access to it. He then shut himself up with six skilled jewellers and endeavoured to make such a gold and silver branch as he thought would satisfy the princess 
as having come from the wonderful tree growing on the Mount Horai. Everyone whom he had asked declared that Mount Horai belonged to the land of fable and not to fact. When the branch was finished, he took his journey home and tried to make himself look as if he were wearied and worn out with travel. He put the jeweled branch into a lacquer box and carried it to the bamboo cutter, begging him to present it to the princess. The old man was quite deceived by the travel-stained appearance of the night and thought that he had just only returned from his long journey with the branch. So he tried to persuade the princess to consent to see the man. But she remained silent and looked very sad. The old man began to take out the branch and praised it as a wonderful treasure to be found nowhere in the whole land. Then he spoke of the knight, how handsome and how brave he was to have undertaken a journey to so remote a place as the Mount of Horai. Princess Moonlight took the branch in her hand and looked at it carefully. She then told her foster parent that she knew it was impossible for the man to have obtained a branch from the gold and silver tree growing on Mount Horai so quickly or so easily and she was sorry to say she believed it artificial. The old man then went out to the expectant knight, who had now approached the house and asked where he had found the branch. Then the man did not scruple to make up a long story. Two years ago I took a ship and started in search of Mount Horai. After going before the wind for some time, I reached the far eastern sea. Then a great storm arose and I was tossed about for many days, losing all count of the points of the compass. And finally, we were blown ashore on an unknown island. Here I found the place inhabited by demons who had at one time threatened to kill and eat me. However, I managed to make friends with these horrible creatures, and they helped me and my sailors to repair the boat. And I set sail again. Our food gave out, and we suffered much from sickness on board. At last, on the five hundredth day, from the day of starting, I saw far off on the horizon what looked like the peak of a mountain. On nearer approach, this proved to be an island, in the centre of which rose a high mountain. I landed, and after wandering about for two or three days, I saw a shining being coming towards me on the beach, holding in his hands a golden bowl. I went up to him and asked him if I had, by good chance, found the island of Mount Horai, and he answered, Yes, this is Mount Horai. With much difficulty I climbed to the summit. Here stood the golden tree, growing with silver roots in the ground. The wonders of that strange land were many. And if I began to tell you all about them, I would never stop. In spite of my wish to stay there long, on breaking off the branch, I hurried back. With utmost speed, it has taken me four hundred days to get back. And, as you see, my clothes are still damp from exposure on the long sea voyage. I have not even waited to change my raiment, so anxious was I to bring the branch to the princess quickly. Just at this moment, the six jewellers, who had been employed in the making of the branch, but had not yet been paid by the knight, arrived at the house and sent in a petition to the princess to be paid for their labor. They said that they had worked for over a thousand days making the branch of gold with its silver twigs and its jeweled fruit that was now presented to her by the knight. 
but as yet they had received nothing in payment. So this night's deception was thus found out, and the princess, glad of an escape from one more suitor, was only too pleased to send back the branch. She called in the workmen and had them paid liberally, and they went away happy. But on the way home, they were overtaken by the disappointed man, who beat them till they were nearly dead for letting out the secret, and they barely escaped with their lives. The knight then returned home, raging in his heart, and in despair of ever winning the princess, gave up society and retired to a solitary life among the mountains. Now the third knight had a friend in China, so he wrote to him to get the skin of the fire rat. The virtue of any part of this animal was that no fire could harm it. He promised his friend an any amount of money he asked, if he only could get him the desired article. As soon as the news came that the ship on which his friend had sailed home had come into port, he rode seven days on horseback to meet him. He handed his friend a large sum of money and received the fire rat's skin. When he reached home, he put it carefully in a box and sent it in to the princess while he waited outside for her answer. The bamboo cutter took the box from the knight and, as usual, carried it into her and tried to coax her to see the knight at once. But Princess Moonlight refused, saying that she must first put the skin to test by putting it into the fire. If it were the real thing, it would not burn. So she took off the crepe paper and opened the box, and then threw the skin into the fire. The skin crackled and burnt up at once, and the princess knew that this man also had not fulfilled his word. So the third night failed also. Now the fourth knight was no more enterprising than the rest. Instead of starting out on the quest of the dragon bearing on its head the five-color radiating jewel, he called all his servants together and gave them the order to seek for it far and wide, in Japan and in China, and he strictly forbade any of them to return till they had found it. His numerous retainers and servants started out in different directions with no intention, however, of obeying what they considered an impossible order. They simply took a holiday, went to pleasant country places together, and grumbled at their master's unreasonableness. The knight, meanwhile, thinking that his retainers could not fail to find the jewel, repaired to his house and fitted it up beautifully for the reception of the princess he felt so sure of winning her. One year passed away in weary waiting, and still his men did not return with the dragon jewel. The knight became desperate. He could wait no longer, so taking with him only two men, he hired a ship and commanded the captain to go in search of the dragon. The captain and the sailors refused to undertake what they said was an absurd search, but the knight compelled them at last to put out to sea. When they had been about a few days out, they encountered a great storm which lasted so long that by the time its fury abated, the knight had determined to give up the hunt of the dragon. They were at last blown on shore, for navigation was primitive in those days. Worn out with his travels and anxiety, the fourth suitor gave himself up to rest. He had caught a very heavy cold and had to go to bed with a swollen face. The governor of the place, hearing of his plight, sent messengers with a letter inviting him to his house. 
While he was there thinking over all his troubles, his love for the princess turned to anger, and he blamed her for all the hardships he had undergone. He thought that it was quite probable she had wished to kill him, so that she might be rid of him, and in order to carry out her wish had sent him upon this impossible quest. At this point all the servants he had sent out to find the jewel came to see him, and were surprised to find praise instead of displeasure awaiting them. Their master told them that he was heartily sick of adventure, and said that he never intended to go near the princess's house again in the future. Like all the rest, the fifth knight failed in his quest. He could not find the swallow's shell. By this time, the fame of Princess Moonlight's beauty had reached the ears of the emperor, and he sent one of the court ladies to see if she were really as lovely as report said. If so, he would summon her to the palace and make her one of the ladies-in-waiting. When the court lady arrived, in spite of her father's entreaties, Princess Moonlight refused to see her. The imperial messenger insisted, saying it was the emperor's order. Then Princess Moonlight told the old man that if she was forced to go to the palace in obedience to the emperor's order, she would vanish from the earth. When the emperor was told of her persistence in refusing to obey his summons, and that if pressed to obey she would disappear altogether from sight, he was determined to go and see her. So he planned to go on a hunting excursion in the neighborhood of the bamboo cutter's house and see the princess himself. He sent word to the old man of his intention, and he received consent to the scheme. The next day, the emperor set out with his retinue, which he soon managed to outride. He found the bamboo cutter's house and dismounted. He then entered the house and went straight to where the princess was sitting with her attendant maidens. Never had he seen anyone so wonderfully beautiful, and he could not but look at her, for she was more lovely than any human being as she shone in her own soft radiance. When Princess Moonlight became aware that a stranger was looking at her, she tried to escape from the room, but the emperor caught her and begged her to listen to what he had to say. Her only answer was to hide her face in her sleeves. The emperor fell deeply in love with her and begged her to come to the court, where he would give her a position of honor and everything she could wish for. He was about to send for one of the imperial palanquins to take her back with him at once, saying that her grace and beauty should adorn a court and not be hidden in a bamboo cutter's cottage. But the princess stopped him. She said that if she were forced to go to the palace, she would turn at once into a shadow, and even as she spoke she began to lose her form. Her figure faded from his sight while he looked. The emperor then promised to leave her free if only she would resume her former shape, which she did. It was now time for him to return, for his retinue would be wondering what had happened to their royal master when they missed him for so long. So he bade her goodbye and left the house with a sad heart. Princess Moonlight was for him the most beautiful woman in the world. All others were pale beside her, and he thought of her night and day. His Majesty now spent much of his time in writing poems, telling her of his love and devotion, and sent them to her. And though she refused to see him again, she answered with many verses of her own composing, which told him gently and kindly that she could never marry anyone on this earth. These little songs always gave him pleasure. At this time, her foster parents noticed 
that night after night, the princess would sit on her balcony and gaze for hours at the moon, in a spirit of the deepest dejection, ending always in a burst of tears. One night, the old man found her thus weeping as if her heart were broken, and he besought her to tell him the reason of her sorrow. With many tears she told him that he had guessed rightly when he supposed her not to belong to this world, that she had in truth come from the moon, and that her time on earth would soon be over. On the fifteenth day of that very month of August, her friends from the moon would come to fetch her, and she would have to return. Her parents were both there, and having spent a lifetime on the earth, she had forgotten them, and also the moon world to which she belonged. It made her weep, she said, to think of leaving her kind foster parents, the home where she had been happy for so long. When her attendants heard this, they were very sad and could not eat or drink for sadness at the thought that the princess was so soon to leave them. The emperor, as soon as the news was carried to him, sent messengers to the house to find out if the report were true or not. The old bamboo cutter went out to meet the imperial messengers. The last few days of sorrow had told upon the old man. He had aged greatly and looked much more than his seventy years. Weeping bitterly, he told them that the report was only too true, but he intended, however, to make prisoners of the envoys from the moon and to do all he could to prevent the princess from being carried back. The men returned and told his majesty all that had passed. On the fifteenth day of that month, the emperor sent a guard of two thousand warriors to watch the house. One thousand stationed themselves on the roof, another thousand kept watch around all the entrances of the house. All were well-trained archers with bows and arrows. The bamboo cutter and his wife hid Princess Moonlight in an inner room. The old man gave orders that no one was to sleep that night. All in the house were to keep a strict watch and be ready to protect the princess. With these precautions and the help of the emperor's men-at-arms, he hoped to withstand the moon messengers. But the princess told him that all these measures to keep her would be useless, and that when her people came for her, nothing whatever could prevent them from carrying out their purpose. Even the emperor's men would be powerless. Then she added with tears that she was very, very sorry to leave him and his wife, whom she had learned to love as her parents, that if she could do as she wished, she would stay with them in their old age and try to make some return for all the love and kindness they had showered upon her during all her earthly life. The night wore on. The yellow harvest moon rose high in the heavens, flooding the world asleep with her golden light. Silence reigned over the pine and the bamboo forests, and on the roof where the thousand men-at-arms waited. Then the night grew grey towards the dawn, and all hoped that the danger was over. The Princess Moonlight would not have to leave them after all. Then suddenly, the watchers saw a cloud form round the moon, and while they looked, this cloud began to roll earthwards. Nearer and nearer it came, and everyone saw with dismay that its course lay towards the house. In a short time, the sky was entirely obscured, till at last, the cloud lay over the dwelling, only ten feet off the ground. In the midst of the cloud there stood a flying chariot, and in the chariot a band of luminous beings. One amongst them, who looked like a king, and appeared to be the chief, 
stepped out of the chariot and poised in the air, called to the old man to come out. The time has come, he said, for Princess Moonlight to return to the moon from whence she came. She committed a grave fault, and as the punishment was sent to live down here for a time, we know what good care you have taken of the princess, and we have rewarded you for this and have sent you wealth and prosperity. We put the gold in the bamboos for you to find. I have brought up this princess for twenty years, and never once has she done a wrong thing. Therefore, the lady you are seeking cannot be this one, said the old man. I pray you look elsewhere. Then the messenger called aloud, saying, Princess Moonlight, come out from this lowly dwelling. Rest not here another moment. At these words, the screens of the princess's room slid open of their own accord, revealing the princess shining in her own radiance, bright and wonderful and full of beauty. The messenger led her forth and placed her in the chariot. She looked back and saw with pity the deep sorrow of the old man. She spoke to him many comforting words and told him that it was not her will to leave him, that he must always think of her when looking at the moon. The bamboo cutter implored to be allowed to accompany her, but this was not allowed. The princess took off her embroidered outer garment and gave it to him as a keepsake. One of the moon beings in the chariot held a wonderful coat of wings. Another had a vial full of the elixir of life, which was given to the princess to drink. She swallowed a little and was about to give the rest to the old man, but she was prevented from doing so. The robe of wings was about to be put upon her shoulders, but she said, Wait a little. I must not forget my good friend, the emperor. I must write him once more to say goodbye while still in this human form. In spite of the impatience of the messengers and charioteers, she kept them waiting while she wrote. She placed the vial of the elixir of life with a letter, and, giving them to the old man, she asked him to deliver them to the emperor. Then the chariot began to roll heavenwards towards the moon. And as they all gazed with tearful eyes at the receding princess, the dawn broke, and in the rosy light of day, the moon chariot and all in it were lost amongst the fleecy clouds that were now wafted across the sky on the wings of the morning wind. Princess Moonlight's letter was carried to the palace. His majesty was afraid to touch the elixir of life, so he sent it with a letter to the top of the most sacred mountain in the land, Mount Fuji. There the royal emissaries burnt it on the summit at sunrise. So to this day, people say there is smoke to be seen rising from the top of Mount Fuji to the clouds. From the book In the Days of Giants by Abby Farwell Brown Thor's Fishing Once upon a time, the Asir went to take dinner with old Agir the king of the ocean. Down under the green waves they went to the coral palace where Gil lived with his wife, Queen Ran, and his daughters, the waves. But Agir was not expecting so large a party to dinner, and he had not mead enough for them all to drink. I must brew some more mead, he said to himself. But when he came to look for a kettle in which to make the brew, 
there was none in all the sea large enough for the purpose. At first, Aguirre did not know what to do, but at last he decided to consult the gods themselves, for he knew how wise and powerful his guests were, and he hoped that they might help him to a kettle. Now when he told the Aesir his trouble, they were much interested, for they were hungry and thirsty, and longed for some of Aguirre's good mead. Where can we find a kettle? they said to one another. Who has a kettle huge enough to hold mead for all the Aesir? Then Tyr the Brave turned to Thor with a grand idea. My father, the giant Himir, has such a kettle, he said. I have seen it often in his palace, near Elavagar, the river of ice. This famous kettle is a mile deep, and surely that is large enough to brew all the mead we may need. Surely, surely it is large enough, laughed Agir. But how are we to get the kettle, my distinguished guests? Who will go to giant land to fetch the kettle a mile deep? That will I, said brave Thor. I will go to Hymir's dwelling and bring thence the little kettle, if Tyr will go with me to show me the way. So Thor and Tyr set out together for the land of snow and ice, where the giant Hymir lived. They travelled long, and they travelled fast, and finally they came to the huge house which had once been Tyr's home, before he went to live with the good folk in Asgard. Well, Tyr knew the way to enter, and it was not long before they found themselves in the hall of Hymir's dwelling, peering about for some sign of the kettle which they had come so far to seek. And sure enough, presently, they discovered eight huge kettles hanging in a row from one of the beams in the ceiling. While the two were wondering which kettle might be the one they sought, there came in Tyr's grandmother, and a terrible grandmother she was. No wonder that Tyr had run away from home when he was very little, for this dreadful creature was a giantess with nine hundred heads, each more ugly than the others, and her temper was as bad as were her looks. She began to roar and bellow, and no one knows what this evil person would have done to her grandson and his friend, had not there come into the hall at this moment another woman, fair and sweet, and glittering with golden ornaments. This was Tyr's good mother, who loved him dearly, and who had mourned his absence during long years. With a cry of joy, she threw herself upon her son's neck, bidding him welcome forty times over. She welcomed Thor also when she found out who he was, but she sent away the wicked old grandmother that she might not hear, for Thor's name was not dear to the race of giants, to so many of whom he had brought dole and death. Why have you come? Dear son, after so many years, she cried. I know that some great undertaking calls you, and this noble fellow, to your father's hall. Danger and death wait here for such as you and he, and only some quest with glory for its reward could have brought you to such risks. Tell me your secret, dear, and I will not betray it. Then they told her how they had come to carry away the giant kettle and Tyr's mother promised that she would help them all she could. 
but she warned them that it would be dangerous indeed, for that Himir had been in a terrible temper for many days, and that the very sight of a stranger made him wild with rage. Hastily, she gave them some meat and drink, for they were nearly famished after their long journey. And then she looked around to see where she should hide them against Tamir's return, who was now away with the hunt. Aha, she cried, the very thing. You shall hide in the great kettle itself, and if you escape Hamir's terrible eye, it may hap that you will find a way to make off with your hiding place, which is what you want. So the kind creature helped them to climb into the great kettle, where it hung from one of the rafters in a row with seven others. But this one was the biggest and the strongest of them all. Hardly had they snuggled down out of sight when Tyr's mother began to tremble. Hist, she cried. I hear him coming. Keep as still as ever you can, O Tyr and Thor. The floor also began to tremble, and the eight kettles to clatter against one another as Hymir's giant footsteps approached the house. Outside, they could hear the icebergs shaking with a sound like thunder. Indeed, the whole earth quivered as if with fear when the terrible giant Hymir strode home from the hunt. He came into the hall, puffing and blowing, and immediately the air of the room grew chilly, for his beard was hung with icicles and his face was frosted hard, while his breath was a winter wind, a freezing blast. Ho, oh, wife, he growled. What news? What news? For I see by the footprints in the snow outside that you have had visitors today. Then indeed the poor woman trembled, but she tried not to look frightened as she answered, Yes, you have a guest, O Himir, a guest whom you have long wished to see. Your son Tyr has returned to visit his father's hall. Humph, growled Himir with a terrible frown. Whom has he brought here with him, the rascal? There are prints of two persons' feet in the snow. Come, wife, tell me all, for I shall soon find out the truth whether or no. He has brought a friend of his, a dear friend, Ohimir, faltered the mother. Surely our son's friends are welcome when he brings them to this our home, after so long an absence. But Himir howled with rage at the word friend. Where are they hidden, he cried. Friend indeed. It is one of those fellows from Asgard, I know one of those giant killers whom my good mother taught me to hate with all my might. Let me get at him. Tell me instantly where he is hidden, or I'll pull down the hall about your ears. Now when the wicked old giant spoke like this, his wife knew that he must be obeyed. Still, she tried to put off the fateful moment of the discovery. They are standing over there behind that pillar, she said. Instantly, Hamir glared at the pillar towards which he pointed, and at his frosty glance, snick-snack, the marble pillar cracked in two, and down crashed the great roof beam which held the eight kettles. Smash went the kettles, and there they lay shivered into little pieces at Hamir's feet, all except one, the largest of them all, and that was the kettle in which Thor and Tyr lay hidden scarcely daring to breathe 
lest the giant should guess where they were. Tyr's mother screamed when she saw the big kettle fall with the others, but when she found out that this one, alone of them all, lay on its side unbroken, because it was so tough and strong, she held her breath to see what would happen next. And what happened was this. Out stepped Thor and Tyr, and making low bows to Hymir, they stood side by side, smiling and looking as unconcerned as if they really enjoyed all this hubbub. And I dare say that they did indeed, being Tyr the Bold and Thor the Thunderer, who had been in giant land many times ere this. Hymir gave scarcely a glance at his son, but he eyed Thor with a frown of hatred and suspicion, for he knew that this was one of Father Odin's brave family, though he could not tell which one. However, he thought best to be civil, now that Thor was actually before him. So with gruff politeness, he invited the two guests to supper. Now Thor was a valiant fellow at the table, as well as in war, as you remember. And at sight of the good things on the board, his eyes sparkled. Three roast oxen there were upon the giant's table. And Thor fell two with a will and finished two of them himself. You should have seen the giant stare. Truly, friend, you have a goodly appetite, he said. You've eaten all the meat that I have in my larder. And if you dine with us tomorrow, I must insist that you catch your own dinner of fish. I cannot undertake to provide food for such an appetite. Now this was not hospitable of Hymir, but Thor did not mind. I like well to fish, good Hymir, he laughed. And when you fare forth with your boat in the morning, I will go with you and see what I can find for my dinner at the bottom of the sea. When the morning came, the giant made ready for the fishing, and Thor rose early to go with him. Ho, Hymir, exclaimed Thor. Have you bait enough for us both? Hymir answered gruffly, You must dig your own bait when you go fishing with me. I have no time to waste on you. Then Thor looked about to see what he could use for bait, and presently he spied a herd of Hymir's oxen feeding in the meadow. Aha, just the thing, he cried, and seizing the hugest ox of all, he trotted down to the shore with it under his arm as easily as you would carry a handful of clams for bait. When Hymir saw this, he was very angry. He pushed the boat off from shore and began to row away as fast as he could so that Thor might not have a chance to come aboard. But Thor made one long step, planted himself snugly in the stern of the boat. No, no, Brother Hymir, he said, laughing. You invited me to go fishing, and a fishing I will go, for I have my bait, and my hope is high that great luck I shall see this day. So he took an oar and rowed mightily in the stern, while Hymir the giant rowed mightily at the prow, and no one ever saw a boat skip over the water so fast as this one did on the day when these two big fellows went fishing together. Far and fast they rowed, until they came to a spot where Hymir cried, Hold, let us anchor here and fish. This is the place where I have best fortune. And what sort of little fish do you catch here, O Hymir? asked Thor. Whales, answered the giant proudly. 
I fish for nothing smaller than whales. Pooh, cried Thor. Who would fish for such small fry? Whales, indeed. Let us row out further where we can find something really worth catching. And he began to pull even faster than before. Stop, stop, roared the giant. You don't know what you're doing. These are the haunts of the dreadful Midgard servant. And it is not safe to fish in these waters. Oh ho, the Midgard serpent, said Thor, delighted. That is the very fish I am after. Let us drop in our lines here. Thor baited his great hook with the whole head of the ox which he had brought and cast his line over the side of the boat. Hymir also cast his line, for he did not wish Thor to think him a coward. But his hand trembled as he waited for a bite and he glanced down into the blue depths with eyes rounded as big as dinner plates through fear of the horrible creature which lived down below those waves. Look, you have a bite, cried Thor, so suddenly that Hymir started and nearly tumbled out of the boat. Hand over hand he pulled in his line, and lo, he had caught two whales, two great flopping whales, on his one hook. That was a catch indeed. Hamir smiled proudly, forgetting his fear as he said, How is that, my friend? Let us see you beat this catch in your morning's fishing. Though, just at that moment, Thor also had a bite, such a bite. The boat rocked to and fro and seemed ready to capsize every minute. Then the waves began to roll high and to be lashed into foam for yards and yards about the boat as if some huge creature were struggling hard below the water. I have him, shouted Thor. I have the old serpent, the brother of the Fenris wolf. Pull, pull, monster, but you shall not escape me now. Sure enough, the Midgard serpent had Thor's hook fixed in his jaw, and struggle as he might, there was no freeing himself from the line, for the harder he pulled, the stronger grew Thor. In his Asir might, Thor waxed so huge and so forceful that his legs went straight through the bottom of the boat and his feet stood on the bottom of the sea. With firm bottom as a brace for his strength, Thor pulled and pulled, and at last up came the head of the Midgard serpent up to the side of the boat where it thrust out of the water mountain high, dreadful to behold. His monstrous red eyes were rolling fiercely his nostrils spouted fire, and from his terrible sharp teeth dripped poison that sizzled as it fell into the sea. Angrily they glared at each other, Thor and the serpent, while the water streamed into the boat, and the giant turned pale with fear at the danger threatening him on all sides. Thor seized his hammer, preparing to smite the creature's head, but even as he swung Mjolnir high for the fatal blow, Hamir cut the line with his knife and down into the depths of the ocean sank the Midgard serpent amid a whirlpool of eddies. But the hammer had sped from Thor's iron fingers. It crushed the serpent's head as he sank downward to his lair on the sandy bottom. It crushed, but it did not kill him thanks to the giant's treachery. Terrible was the disturbance it caused beneath the waves. It burst the rocks and made the caverns of the ocean shiver into bits. 
that wrecked the coral groves and tore loose the draperies of seaweed. The fishes scurried about in every direction, and the sea monsters wildly sought new places to hide themselves when they found their homes destroyed. The sea itself was stirred to its lowest depths, and the waves ran trembling into one another's arms. The earth, too, shrank and shivered. Himir, cowering low in the boat, was glad of one thing, which was that the terrible Midgard serpent had vanished out of sight. And that was the last that was ever seen of him, though he still lived, wounded and sore from the shock of Thor's hammer. Now it was time to return home. Silently and sulkily, the giant swam back to land, Thor bearing the boat upon his shoulders, filled with water, and waited as it was with the great whales which Hymir had caused. Waded ashore, and brought his burden to the giant's hall. Here Hymir met him, crossly enough, for he was ashamed of the whole morning's work, in which Thor had appeared so much more of a hero than he. Indeed, he was tired of even pretending hospitality towards his unwelcome guest, and was resolved to be rid of him. But first, he would put Thor to shame. You are a strong fellow, he said, good at the oar and at the fishing, most wondrously good at the hammer, by which I know that you are Thor. But there is one thing which you cannot do. I warrant you cannot break this little cup of mine, hard though you may try. That I shall see for myself, answered Thor, and he took the cup in his hand. Now this was a magic cup, and there was but one way of breaking it, but one thing hard enough to shatter its mightiness. Thor threw it with all his force against the stone of the flooring, but instead of breaking the cup, the stone itself was cracked into splinters. Then Thor grew angry, for the giant and all his servants were laughing, as if this were the greatest joke ever played. Try again, Thor, cried Hymir, nearly bursting with delight, for he thought that now he should prove how much mightier he was than the visitor from Asgard. Thor clutched the cup more firmly and hurled it against one of the iron pillars of the hall, but like a rubber ball, the magic cup merely bounded back straight into Hymir's hand. At this second failure, the giants were full of merriment and danced about, making all manner of fun at the expense of Thor. You can fancy how well Thor the Mighty enjoyed this. His brow grew black, and the glance of his eye was terrible. He knew there was some magic in the trick, but he knew not how to meet it. Just then he felt the soft touch of a woman's hand upon his arm, and the voice of Tyr's mother whispered in his ear. Cast the cup against Hymir's own forehead, which is the hardest substance in the world. No one except Thor heard the woman say these words, for all the giant folk were doubled up with mirth over their famous joke. But Thor dropped upon one knee, and seizing the cup fiercely, whirled it about his head, and then dashed it with all his might straight at Hamir's forehead. Smash, crash. What had happened? Thor looked eagerly to see. There stood the giant, looking surprised and a little dazed, but his forehead showed not even a scratch, while the strong cup was shivered into little pieces. Well done, exclaimed Hamir hastily, when he had recovered a little from his surprise. 
but he was mortified at Thor's success and set about to think up a new task to try his strength. That was very well, he said. Now you must perform a harder task. Let us see you carry the mead kettle out of the hall. Do that, my fine friend, and I shall say you are strong indeed. The mead kettle, the very thing Thor had come to get. He glanced at Tyr. He shot a look at Tyr's mother, and both of them caught the sparkle, which was very like a wink. To himself, Thor muttered, I must not fail in this. I must not, will not fail. First, let me try, cried Tyr, for he wanted to give Thor time for a resting spell. Twice, Tyr the Mighty strained the great kettle, but he could not so much as stir one leg of it from the floor where it rested. He tugged and heaved in vain, growing red in the face, till his mother begged him to give over, for it was quite useless. Then Thor stepped forth upon the floor. He grasped the rim of the kettle and stamped his feet through the stone of the flooring as he braced himself to lift. One, two, three. Thor straightened himself and upswung the giant kettle to his head while the iron handle clattered about his feet. It was a mighty burden and Thor staggered as he started for the door. But Tyr was close behind and they had covered long leagues of ground on their way home before the astonished giants had recovered sufficiently to follow them. When Thor and Tyr looked back, however, they saw a vast crowd of horrible giants, some of them with a hundred heads, swarming out of the caverns in Hymir's land, howling and prowling upon their track. You must stop them, Thor, or they will never let us get away with their precious kettle. They take such long strides, cried Tyr. So Thor set down the kettle, and from his pocket drew out Mjolnir, his wondrous hammer. Terribly it flashed in the air as he swung it over his head. Then forth it flew towards Jotunheim, and before it returned to Thor's hand, it had crushed all the heads of those many-headed giants, Hymir's ugly mother, and Hymir himself among them. The only one who escaped was the good and beautiful mother of Tyr. And you may be sure she lived happily ever after in the palace, which Hymir and his wicked old mother had formerly made so wretched a home for her. Now Tyr and Thor had the giant kettle which they had gone so far and met so many dangers to obtain. They took it to Aegir's sea palace, where the banquet was still going on, and where the seer were still waiting patiently for their mead, for time does not go so fast below the quiet waves as on shore. Now that the king had the great kettle, he could brew all the mead they needed. So everyone thanked Tyr and congratulated Thor upon the success of their adventure. I was sure that Thor would bring the kettle, said Fersif, smiling upon her brave husband. What Thor sets out to do, that he always accomplishes, said Father Odin gravely, and that was praise enough for anyone. Puss in Boots There was once a miller who, at his death, had nothing to leave his three sons except his mill, his donkey, and his cat. The eldest son took the mill, the second took the donkey, and as for the youngest, all that remained for him was the cat. 
The youngest son grumbled at this. My brothers, said he, will be able to earn an honest living. But when I have eaten my cat and sold his skin, I shall die of hunger. The cat, who was sitting beside him, overheard this. Nay, master, he said, don't take such a gloomy view of things. If you will get me a pair of boots made so that I can walk through the brambles without hurting my feet, and give me a bag, you shall soon see what I'm worth. The cat's master was so surprised to hear his cat talking that he at once got him what he wanted. The cat drew on the boots and slung the bag round his neck and set off for a rabbit warren. When he got there, he filled his bag with bran and lettuces and stretching himself out beside it as if dead, waited until some young rabbit should be tempted into the bag. This happened very soon. A fat, thoughtless rabbit went in headlong, and the cat at once jumped up, pulled the strings, and killed him. Puss was very proud of his success, and going to the king's palace, he asked to speak to the king. When he was shown into the king's presence, he bowed respectfully, and laying the rabbit down before the throne, he said, Sire, here is a rabbit which my master, the Marquis of Carabas, desires me to present to your majesty. Tell your master, said the king, that I accept his present, and I am very much obliged to him. A few days later, the cat went and hid himself in a cornfield and laid his bag open as before. This time, two splendid partridges were lured into the trap, and these also he took to the palace and presented to the king from the Marquis of Carabas. The king was very pleased with this gift and ordered the messenger of the Marquis of Carabas to be handsomely rewarded. For two or three months, the cat went on in this way, carrying game every day to the palace and saying it was sent by the Marquis of Carabas. At last, the cat happened to hear that the king was going to take a drive of the banks of the river with his daughter, the most beautiful princess in the world. He at once went to his master. Master, said he, if you follow my advice, your fortune will be made. Go and bathe in the river at a place I shall show you, and I will do the rest. Very well, said the miller's son, and he did, as the cat told him. When he was in the water, the cat took away his clothes and hid them, and then ran to the road, just as the king's coach went by, calling out as loudly as he could. Help, help, the Marquis of Carabas will be drowned. The king looked out of the carriage window, and when he saw the cat who had brought him so many fine rabbits and partridges, he ordered his bodyguards to fly at once to the rescue of the Marquis of Carabas. Then the cat came up to the carriage and told the king that while his master was bathing, some robbers had stolen his clothes. The king immediately ordered one of his own magnificent suits of clothes to be taken to the Marquis. So when the miller's son appeared before the monarch and his daughter, he looked so handsome and was so splendidly attired that the princess fell in love with him on the spot. The king was so struck with his appearance that he insisted upon his getting into the carriage to take a drive with them. The cat, delighted with the way his plans were turning out, 
ran on before. He reached a meadow where some peasants were making hay. Good people, said he, if you do not tell the king, when he comes this way, that the meadow you are mowing belongs to the Marquis of Carabas, you shall all be chopped up into little pieces. When the king came by, he stopped to ask the haymakers to whom the meadow belonged. To the Marquis of Carabas, if it please your majesty, answered they, trembling. For the cat's threat had frightened them terribly. The cat, who continued to run before the carriage, now came to some reapers. Good people, said he, if you do not tell the king that all this corn belongs to the Marquis of Carabas, you shall all be chopped up into little pieces. The king again stopped to ask to whom the land belonged, and the reapers, obedient to the cat's command, answered, To the Marquis of Carabas, please, your majesty. And all the way, the cat kept running on before the carriage, repeating the same instructions to all the labourers he came to, so that the king became very astonished at the vast possessions of the Marquis of Carabas. At last, the cat arrived at a great castle where an ogre lived, who was very rich. For all the lands through which the king had been riding were part of his estate. The cat knocked at the castle door and asked to see the ogre. The ogre received him very civilly and asked him what he wanted. If you please, sir, said the cat, I have heard that you have the power of changing yourself into any sort of animal you please and I came to see if it could possibly be true. So I have, replied the ogre, and in a moment he turned himself into a lion. This gave the cat a great fright, and he scrambled up the curtains to the ceiling. Indeed, sir, he said, I am now quite convinced of your power to turn yourself into such a huge animal as a lion, but I do not suppose you can change yourself into a small one, such as a mouse, for instance. Indeed I can, cried the ogre indignantly, and in a moment the lion had vanished while a little brown mouse frisked about the floor. In less than half a second the cat sprang down from the curtains and pouncing upon the mouse, ate him all up before the ogre had time to return to any other shape. And when the king arrived at the castle gates, there stood the cat upon the doorstep, bowing and saying, Welcome to the castle of the Marquis of Carabas. The Marquis helped the king and the princess to alight, and the cat led them into a great hall where a feast had been spread for the ogre. The king was so delighted with the good looks, the charming manners, and the great wealth of the Marquis of Carabas that he said that the Marquis must marry his daughter. The Marquis, of course, replied that he should only be too happy, and the very next day, he and the princess were married. As for the cat, he was given the title of Puss in Boots, and ever after only caught mice for his own amusement. Dick Whittington and his Cat In the reign of King Edward III, there was a poor orphan boy named Dick Whittington, living in a country village a long way from London. He was a sharp little lad, and the stories that he heard of London being paved with gold made him long to visit that city. One day, a large wagon and eight horses, with bells at their heads, drove through the village. 
Dick thought it must be going to London, so he asked the driver to let him walk by the side of the wagon. As soon as the driver heard that poor Dick had neither father nor mother, and saw by his ragged clothes that he could not be worse off than he was, he told him he might go if he would, so they set off together. Dick got safely to London, and was in such a hurry to see the fine streets paved with gold, that he ran through many of them, thinking every moment to come to those that were paved with gold. For Dick had seen a guinea three times in his own little village, and remembered what a lot of money it brought in change. So he thought he had nothing to do but to take up some little bits of pavement, and he would then have as much money as he could wish for. Poor Dick ran till he was tired, and had quite forgotten his friend the driver. At last, finding it grow dark, and that every way he turned he saw nothing but dirt instead of gold, he sat down in a dark corner and cried himself to sleep. Next morning, being very hungry, he got up and walked about, and asked everybody he met to give him a haypenny to keep him from starving. At last, a good-natured-looking gentleman saw how hungry he looked. Why don't you go to work, my lad, said he. I would, answered Dick, but I do not know how to get any. If you are willing, said the gentleman, come with me. And so saying, he took him to a hay field where Dick worked briskly and lived merrily till the hay was all made. After this, he found himself as badly off as before, and being almost starved again, he laid himself down at the door of Mr. Fitzwarren a rich merchant. Hare the cook, an ill-tempered woman, called out to poor Dick. What business have you here, you lazy rogue? If you do not take yourself away, we will see how you like a sousing of some dishwater I have here that is hot enough to make you jump. At this time, Mr. Fitzwarren himself came home to dinner, and when he saw a dirty, ragged boy lying at the door, he said in a kind and gentle voice, Why do you lie there, my lad? You seem old enough to work. I'm afraid you are lazy. No, sir, said Dick to him. I would work with all my heart, but I do not know anybody, and I am sick for want of food. Poor fellow, answered Mr. Fitzwarren. Get up. Let me see what ails you. Dick tried to rise, but was too weak to stand, for he had not eaten anything for three days. So the kind merchant ordered him to be taken into the house and have a good dinner given to him and to be kept to do what dirty work he could for the cook. Dick would have lived happily in this good family if it had not been for the ill-natured cook, who was finding fault and scolding him from morning till night. And besides, she was so fond of basting that when she had no roast meat to baste, she would be basting poor Dick. For though the cook was so ill-tempered, the footman was quite different. He had lived in the family many years and was an elderly man and very kind-hearted. He had once a little son of his own who died when about the age of Dick, so he could not help feeling pity for the poor boy and sometimes gave him a halfpenny to buy gingerbread or a top. The footman was fond of reading and used often in the evening to entertain the other servants with some amusing book. Little Dick took pleasure in hearing this good man which made him wish very much to learn to read too. So the next time the footman gave him a halfpenny, he bought a little book with it, and with the footman's help, Dick soon learned his letters 
and afterwards to read. About this time, Miss Alice, Mr. Fitzwarren's daughter, was going out one morning for a walk, and Dick was told to put on a suit of good clothes that Mr. Fitzwarren gave him and walk behind her. As they went, Miss Alice saw a poor woman with one child in her arms and another on her back. She pulled out her purse and gave the woman some money, but as she was putting it into her pocket again, she dropped it on the ground and walked on. It was lucky that Dick was behind and saw what she had done, for he picked up the purse and gave it to her again. Another time, when Miss Alice was sitting with the window open and amusing herself with a favourite parrot, it suddenly flew away to the branch of a high tree, where all the servants were afraid to venture after it. As soon as Dick heard of this, he pulled off his coat and climbed up the tree as nimbly as a squirrel, and after a great deal of trouble, caught her and brought her down safely to his mistress. Miss Alice thanked him and liked him ever after for this. The ill-humoured cook was now a little kinder, but besides this, Dick had another hardship to get over. His bed stood in a garret where there were so many holes in the floor and the walls that every night he was waked in his sleep by the rats and mice which ran over his face and made such a noise that he sometimes thought the walls were tumbling down about him. One day, a gentleman came to see Mr. Fitzwarren, who wanted his shoes polished. Dick took great pains to make them shine, and the gentleman gave him a penny. With this, he thought, he would buy a cat. So the next day, seeing a little girl with a cat under her arm, he went up to her and asked if she would let him have it for a penny. The girl said she would, and that it was a very good mouser. Dick hid the cat in the garret and always took care to carry a part of his dinner to her, and in a short time he had no more trouble from the rats and mice. Soon after, his master had a ship ready to sail, and as he thought it right all his servants should have some chance for good fortune as well as himself, he called them into the parlour and asked them if they wanted to take a share in the trading trip. They all had some money that they were willing to venture, except poor Dick, who had neither money nor goods. For this reason, he did not come into the parlour with the rest, but Miss Alice guessed what was the matter and ordered him to be called in. She then said she would put money in for him from her own purse, but her father told her this would not do, for Dick must send something of his own. When poor Dick heard this, he said he had nothing but a cat. Fetch your cat then, my good boy, said Mr. Fitzwarren, and let her go. Dick went upstairs and brought down poor Puss and gave her to the captain with tears in his eyes. All the company laughed at Dick's odd venture, and Miss Alice, who felt pity for the poor boy, gave him some money to buy another cat. This and other marks of kindness shown him by Miss Alice made the ill-tempered cook jealous of poor Dick, and she began to use him more cruelly than ever, and always made fun of him for sending his cat to sea. She asked him if he thought his cat would sell for as much money as would buy a stick to beat him. At last, poor Dick could not bear this any longer and thought he would run away from his place so he packed up his few things and set out very early in the morning on the 1st of November. He walked as far as Highgate and there sat down on a stone, which is to this day called Whittington Stone, and began to think which road he should take further. 
While he was thinking what he should do, the bells of the bow church began to ring, and he fancied their sounds seemed to say, Turn again, Whittington, Lord Mayor of London. Lord Mayor of London, said he to himself, Why, to be sure, I would put up with almost anything now to be Lord Mayor of London and ride in a fine coach when I grow to be a man. I will go back and think nothing of the cuffing and scolding of the old cook if I am to be Lord Mayor of London at last. Dick went back and was lucky enough to get into the house and set about his work before the cook came down. The ship, with the cat on board, was a long time at sea and was at last driven by the winds on a part of the coast of Barbary. The people came in great numbers to see the sailors and treated them very civilly and when they became better acquainted, were eager to buy the fine things with which the ship was laden. When the captain saw this, he sent patterns of the best things he had to the king of the country, who was so much pleased with them, that he sent for the captain and the chief mate to the palace. Here they were placed, as is the custom of the country, on rich carpets marked with gold and silver flowers. The king and queen were seated at the upper end of the room and a number of dishes of the greatest rarities were brought in for dinner. But before they had been put on the table, a minute, a vast number of rats and mice rushed in and helped themselves from every dish. The captain wondered at this and asked if these vermins were not very unpleasant. Oh yes, they said, and the king would give half of his riches to get rid of them, for they not only waste his dinner, as you see, but disturb him in his bedroom so that he is obliged to be watched while he is asleep. The captain was ready to jump for joy when he heard this. He thought of poor Dick's cat, and told the king he had a creature on board his ship that would kill all the rats and mice. The king was still more glad than the captain. Bring this creature to me, said he, and if it can do what you say, I will give you your ship full of gold for her. The captain, to make quite sure of his good luck, answered, that she was such a clever cat for catching mice and rats that he could hardly bear to part with her, but that to oblige his majesty, he would fetch her. Run, run, said the queen, for I long to see the creature that will do such service. Away went the captain to the ship while another dinner was got ready. He came back to the palace soon enough to see the table full of rats and mice again, and the second dinner likely to be lost in the same way as the first. The cat did not wait for bidding, but jumped out of the captain's arms and in a few moments laid almost all the rats and mice dead at her feet. The rest, in fright, scampered away to their holes. The king and queen were delighted to get rid of such a plague so easily. They desired that the creature might be brought for them to look at. On this, the captain called out, Puss, puss, and the cat ran and jumped upon his knee. He then held her out to the queen, who was afraid to touch an animal that was able to kill so many rats and mice, but when she saw how gentle the cat seemed and how glad she was at being stroked by the captain, she ventured to touch her also, saying all the time, poot poot, for she could not speak English. At last, the queen took the cat on her lap and by degrees became quite free with her till the cat purred herself to sleep. When the king had seen the actions of the mistress's cat and was told that she would soon have young ones, which might in time kill all the rats and mice in his country, 
he bought the captain's whole ship's cargo and afterwards gave him a great deal of gold besides, which was worth still more for the cat. The captain then took leave and set sail with a fair wind and arrived safe at London. One morning, when Mr. Fitzwarren had come into the counting house and seated himself at the desk, somebody came tap-tap-tap at the door. Who is there? answered Mr. Fitzwarren. A friend, answered someone. And who should it be but the captain, followed by several men carrying vast lumps of gold that had been paid by the King of Barbary for the ship's cargo? They then told the story of the cat and showed the rich present that the king had sent to Dick for her, upon which the merchantman called out to his servants, Go fetch him, we will tell him of the same, for call him Mr. Whittington by name. Mr. Fitzwarren now showed himself a really good man, for while some of his clerks said so great a treasure was too much for such a boy as Dick, he answered, I will not keep the value of a single penny from him. It is all his own, and he shall have every farthing's worth of it. He sent for Dick, who happened to be scouring the cook's kettles, and was quite dirty, so that he wanted to excuse himself from going to his master. Mr. Fitzwarren, however, made him come in, and ordered a chair to be sent for him, so that poor Dick thought they were making fun of him, and began to beg his master not to play tricks with a poor boy, but to let him go again to his work. Indeed, Mr. Whittington, said the merchant, we are all in earnest with you, and I heartily rejoice in the news these gentlemen have brought you, for the captain has sold your cat to the king of Barbary, and brought you, in return for her, more riches than I possess, and I wish you may long enjoy them. Mr. Fitzwarren then told the men to open the great treasure they had brought with them, and said, Mr. Whittington has now nothing to do but put it in some place of safety. Poor Dick hardly knew how to behave himself for joy. He begged his master to take what part of it he pleased, since he owed it all to his kindness. No, no, answered Mr. Fitzwarren. This is all your own, and I have no doubt you will use it well. Dick next asked his mistress, and then Miss Alice, to accept a part of his good fortune, but they would not, and at the same time told him that his success afforded them great pleasure. But the poor fellow was too kind-hearted to keep it all to himself, so he made a handsome present to the captain, the mate, and every one of the sailors, and afterwards to his good friend the footman, and the rest of Mr. Fitzwarren's servants, and even to the ill-natured cook. After this, Mr. Fitzwarren advised him to get himself dressed like a gentleman, and told him he was welcome to live in his house till he could provide himself with a better. When Whittington's face was washed, his hair curled, his hat cocked, and he was dressed in a nice suit of clothes, he was as handsome as any young man who visited at Mr. Fitzwarren's, so that Miss Alice, who had been so kind to him, and thought of him with pity, now looked upon him as fit to be her sweetheart, and the more so, no doubt, because Whittington was now always thinking what he could do to oblige her, and making her the prettiest presence that could be. Mr. Fitzwarren soon saw their love for each other, and proposed to join them in marriage, and to this they both readily agreed. A day for the wedding was soon fixed, and they were attended to church by the Lord Mayor, the Court of Aldermen, the Sheriffs, and a great number of the richest merchants in London, whom they afterwards treated with a fine feast. History tells us that Mr. Whittington and his lady lived in great splendour and were very happy. They had several children, 
He was Sheriff of London in the year 1360, and several times afterwards Lord Mayor. The last time he entertained King Henry V, on His Majesty's return from the famous Battle of Agincourt. In this company, the King, on account of Whittington's gallantry, said, Never had Prince such a subject. And when Whittington was told this at the table, he answered, Never had subject such a king. Going with an address from the city on one of the king's victories, he received the honour of knighthood. Sir Richard Whittington supported many poor. He built a church and also a college with a yearly allowance to poor scholars and near it raised a hospital. The figure of Sir Richard Whittington, with his cat in his arms, carved in stone, was to be seen till the year 1780 over the archway of the old prison of Newgate that stood across Newgate Street. The Brave Little Tailor One summer's day, a little tailor sat on his table by the window in the best of spirits and sewed for dear life. As he was sitting thus, a peasant woman came down the street calling out, Good jam to sell, good jam to sell. This sounded sweetly in the tailor's ears. He put his frail little head out of the window and shouted, Up here, my good woman, and you'll find a willing customer. The woman climbed up the three flights of stairs with her heavy basket to the tailor's room, and he made her spread out all the pots in a row before him. He examined them all, lifted them up and smelt them, and said at last, This jam seems good. Weigh me four ounces of it, my good woman. And even if it's a quarter of a pound, I won't stick at it. The woman, who had hoped to find a good market, gave him what he wanted, but went away grumbling wrathfully. Now heaven shall bless this jam for my use, cried the little tailor, and it shall sustain and strengthen me. He fetched some bread out of a cupboard, cut a round off the loaf, and spread the jam on it. That won't taste to miss, he said, but I'll finish that waistcoat first before I take a bite. He placed the bread beside him, went on sewing, and out of the lightness of his heart, kept on making his stitches bigger and bigger. In the meantime, the smell of the sweet jam rose to the ceiling, where heaps of flies were sitting, and attracted them to such an extent that they swarmed onto it in masses. Ha, who invited you? said the tailor, and chased the unwelcome guests away. But the flies, who didn't understand English, refused to let themselves be warned off, and returned again in even greater numbers. At last, the little tailor, losing all patience, reached out of his chimney corner for a duster, and exclaiming, Wait, and I'll give it to you. He beat them mercilessly with it. When he left off, he counted the slain, and no fewer than seven lay dead before him with outstretched legs. What a desperate fellow I am, said he. I was filled with admiration at his own courage. The whole town must know about this. And in great haste, the little tailor cut out a girdle, hemmed it, and embroidered on it in big letters, seven at a blow. What did I say, the town? No, 
the whole world shall hear of it, he said, and his heart beat for joy as a lamb wags its tail. The tailor strapped the girdle round his waist and set out into the wide world, for he considered his workroom too small a field for his prowess. Before he set forth, he looked round about him to see if there was anything in the house he could take with him on his journey. But he found nothing except an old cheese, which he took possession of. In front of the house, he observed a bird that had been caught in some bushes, and this he put into his wallet beside the cheese. Then he went on his way merrily, and being light and agile, he never felt tired. His way led up a hill, on the top of which sat a powerful giant, who was calmly surveying the landscape. The little tailor went up to him and, greeting him cheerfully, said, Good day, friend. There you sit at your ease, viewing the whole wide world. I'm just on my way there. What do you say to accompany me? The giant looked contemptuously at the tailor and said, What a poor wretched little creature you are. That's a good joke, answered the little tailor, and unbuttoning his coat, he showed the giant the girdle. There now, you can read what sort of fellow I am. The giant read seven at a blow, and thinking they were human beings the tailor had slain, he conceived a certain respect for the little man. But first he thought he'd test him. So taking up a stone in his hand, he squeezed it till some drops of water ran out. Now you do the same, said the giant, if you really wish to be thought strong. Is that all, said the little tailor. That's child's play to me. So he dived into his wallet, brought out the cheese, and pressed it till the whey ran out. My squeeze was in sooth better than yours, said he. The giant didn't know what to say, for he couldn't have believed it of the little fellow. To prove him again, the giant lifted a stone and threw it so high that the eye could hardly follow it. Now let me see you do that. Well thrown, said the tailor. But after all, your stone fell to the ground. I'll throw one that won't come down at all. He dived into his wallet again, and grasping the bird in his hand, he threw it up into the air. The bird, enchanted to be free, soared up into the sky and flew away, never to return. Well, what do you think of that little piece of business, friend? asked the tailor. You can certainly throw, but now let's see if you can carry a proper weight. With these words, he led the tailor to a huge oak tree, which had been felled to the ground, and said, If you're strong enough, help me to carry the tree out of the wood. Well, certainly, said the tailor. Just you take the trunk on your shoulder. I'll bear the top and branches, which is certainly the heaviest part. The giant laid the trunk on his shoulder, but the tailor sat at his ease among the branches, and the giant, who couldn't see what was going on behind him, had to carry the whole tree and the little tailor into the bargain. There he sat behind in the best of spirits, lustily whistling a tune, as if carrying the tree were mere sport. The giant, after dragging the heavy weight for some time, could go on no further, and shouted out, Hi, I must let the tree fall. The tailor sprang nimbly down, seized the tree with both hands as if he had carried it the whole way, and said to the giant, Fancy a big lout like you not being able to carry a tree. 
They continued to go on their way together, and as they passed by a cherry tree, the giant grasped the top of it, where the ripest fruit hung, gave the branches into the tailor's hand, and bade him eat. But the little tailor was far too weak to hold the tree down, and when the giant let go of the tree, swung back into the air, bearing the little tailor with it. When he had fallen to the ground again without hurting himself, the giant said, What? Do you mean to tell me you haven't the strength to hold down a feeble twig? It wasn't strength that was wanting, replied the tailor. Do you think that would have been anything for a man who is killed seven at a blow? I jumped over the tree because the huntsmen are shooting among the branches near us. Do you do the like if you dare? The giant made an attempt but couldn't get over the tree and stuck fast into the branches, so that here too the tailor had the better of him. Well, you're a fine fellow after all, said the giant. Come and spend the night with us in our cave. The little tailor willingly consented to do this, and following his friend, they went on till they reached a cave where several other giants were sitting round a fire, each holding a roast sheep in his hand, of which he was eating. The little tailor looked about him and thought, yes, there's certainly more room to turn around in here than in my workshop. The giant showed him a bed and bade him lie down and have a good sleep. But the bed was too big for the little tailor, so he couldn't get into it, but crept away into the corner. At midnight, when the giant thought the little tailor was fast asleep, he rose up, and taking his big iron walking stick, he broke the bed in two with a blow, and thought he had made an end of the little grasshopper. At early dawn, the giants went off to the wood, and quite forgot about the little tailor, till all of a sudden they met him trudging along in the most cheerful manner. The giants were terrified at the apparition, and fearful lest he should slay them. They all took to their heels as fast as they could. The little tailor continued to follow his nose, and after he had wandered about for a long time, he came to the courtyard of a royal palace, and feeling tired, he lay down on the grass and fell asleep. While he lay there, the people came, and looking him all over, red on his girdle, seven at a blow. Oh, they said, what can this great hero of a hundred fights want in our peaceful land? He must indeed be a mighty man of valor. They went and told the king about him, and said what a weighty and useful man he'd be in time of war, and that it would be well to secure him at any price. This counsel pleased the king and he sent one of his courtiers down to the little tailor to offer him, when he awoke, a commission in their army. The messenger remained standing by the sleeper and waited till he stretched his limbs and opened his eyes when he tendered his proposal. That's the very thing I came here for, he answered. I am quite ready to enter the king's service. So he was received with all honour and given a special house of his own to live in, but the other officers resented the success of the little tailor and wished him a thousand miles away. What's to come of it all, they asked each other. If we quarrel with him, he'll let out at us, and at every blow seven will fall. There'll soon be an end of us. So they resolved to go in a body to the king, all to send in their papers. We are not made, they said, to hold out against a man who kills seven at a blow. The king was grieved at the thought of losing all his faithful servants for the sake of one man. 
and he wished heartily that he had never set eyes on him, or that he could get rid of him. But he didn't dare to send him away, for he feared he might kill him along with his people and place himself on the throne. He pondered long and deeply over the matter, and finally came to a conclusion. He sent to the tailor and told him that, seeing what a great and warlike hero he was, he was about to make him an offer. In a certain wood of his kingdom, there dwelled two giants who did much harm. By the way, they robbed, murdered, burnt, and plundered everything about them. No one could approach them without endangering his life. But if he could overcome and kill these two giants, he should have his only daughter for a wife and have his kingdom into the bargain. He might have a hundred horsemen, too, to back him up. That's the very thing for a man like me, thought the little tailor. One doesn't get the offer of a beautiful princess and a half a kingdom every day. Done with you, he answered. I'll soon put an end to the giants. But I haven't the smallest need of your hundred horsemen. A fellow who can slay seven men at a blow need not be afraid of two. The little tailor set out, and the hundred horsemen followed him. When he came to the outskirts of the wood, he said to his followers, you wait here. I'll manage the giants by myself. And he went on into the wood, casting his sharp little eyes right and left about him. After a while, he spied the two giants lying asleep under a tree and snoring till the very boughs bent with a breeze. The little tailor lost no time in filling his wallet with stones and then climbed up the tree under which they lay. When he got to about the middle of it, he slipped along a branch till he sat just above the sleepers, when he threw down one stone after the other on the nearest giant. The giant felt nothing for a long time, but at last he woke up, and pinching his companion said, What do you strike me for? I didn't strike you, said the other. You must be dreaming. They both lay down to sleep again, and the tailor threw down a stone on the second giant, who sprang up and cried, What's that for? Why did you throw something at me? I didn't throw anything, growled the first one. They wrangled on for a time, till, as both were tired, they made up the matter and fell asleep again. The little tailor began his game once more and flung the largest stone he could find in his wallet with all his force and hit the first giant on the chest. This is too much of a good thing, he yelled. And springing up like a madman, he knocked his companion against the tree till he trembled. He gave, however, as good as he got, and they became so enraged that they tore up trees and beat each other with them till they both fell dead at once on the ground. Then the little tailor jumped down. It's a mercy, he said, that they didn't root up the tree on which I was perched, or I should have had to jump like a squirrel onto another, which, nimble though I am, would have been no easy job. He drew his sword and gave each of the giants a very fine thrust or two on the breast, and then went to the horseman and said, The deed is done. I've put an end to the two of them, but I assure you it has been no easy matter, for they even tore up trees in their struggles to defend themselves. But all that's of no use against one who slays seven men at a blow. Weren't you wounded? asked the horseman. No fear, answered the tailor. They haven't touched a hair of my head. But the horsemen wouldn't believe him till they rode into the wood 
and found the giants sweltering in their blood, and the trees lying round, torn up by the roots. The little tailor now demanded the promised reward from the king, but he repented his promise and pondered once more how he could get rid of the hero. Before you obtain the hand of my daughter and half my kingdom, he said to him, you must do another deed of valor. A unicorn is running around loose in the wood and doing much mischief. You must first catch it. I am even less afraid of one unicorn than of two giants. Seven at a blow. That's my motto. He took a piece of cord and an axe with him, went out to the wood, and again told the men who had been sent with him to remain outside. He hadn't to search long, for the unicorn soon passed by, and on perceiving the tailor, dashed straight at him, as if it were going to spike him on the spot. Gently, gently, said he. Not so fast, my friend. And standing still, he waited till the beast was quite near, when he sprang lightly behind a tree. The unicorn ran with all its force against the tree, and rammed its horn so firmly into the trunk that it had no strength left to pull it out again, and was thus successfully captured. Now I've caught my bird, said the tailor, and he came out from behind the tree, placed the cord round its neck first, then struck the horn out of the tree with his axe, and when everything was in order, led the beast before the king. Still, the king didn't want to give him the promised reward, and made a third demand. The tailor was to catch a wild boar for him that did a great deal of harm in the wood, and he might have the huntsman to help him. Willingly, said the tailor, that's mere child's play. But he didn't take the huntsman into the wood with him, and they were well enough pleased to remain behind, for the wild boar had often received them in a manner which did not make them desire its further acquaintance. As soon as the boar perceived the tailor, it ran at him with foaming mouth and gleaming teeth and tried to knock him down. But our alert little friend ran into a chapel that stood near and got out of the window again with a jump. The boar pursued him into the church, but the tailor skipped round to the door and closed it securely. So the raging beast was caught, for it was far too heavy and unwieldy to spring out of the window. The little tailor summoned the huntsmen together that they might see the prisoner with their own eyes. Then the hero betook himself to the king, who was obliged now, whether he liked it or not, to keep his promise, and hand him over his daughter and half his kingdom. Had he known that no hero warrior, but only a little tailor, stood before him, it would have gone even more to his heart. So the wedding was celebrated with much splendor and little joy, and the tailor became a king. After a time, the queen heard her husband saying one night in his sleep, My lad, make that waistcoat and patch those trousers, or I'll box your ears. Thus she learned in what rank the young gentleman had been born, and next day she poured forth her woes to her father and begged him to help her to get rid of a husband who was nothing more nor less than a tailor. The king comforted her and said, Leave your bedroom door open tonight. My servants shall stand outside, and when your husband is fast asleep, they shall enter, bind him fast, and carry him onto a ship, which shall sail away 
out into the wide ocean. The queen was well satisfied with the idea, but the armor-bearer, who had overheard everything, being much attached to his young master, went straight to him and revealed the whole plot. I'll soon put a stop to the business, said the tailor. That night, he and his wife went to bed at the usual time, and when she thought he had fallen asleep, she got up, opened the door, and then lay down again. The little tailor, who had only pretended to be asleep, began to call out in a clear voice, My lad, make that waistcoat and patch those trousers, or I'll box your ears. I've killed seven at a blow, slain two giants, led a unicorn captive, and caught a wild boar. And why should I be afraid of those men standing outside my door? The men, when they heard the tailor sailing these words, were so terrified that they fled as if pursued by a wild army and didn't dare go near him again. So the little tailor was and remained a king all the days of his life. East of the Sun and West of the Moon Once upon a time, there was a poor man who had so many children that he hadn't much of either food or clothing to give them. Pretty children they all were, but the prettiest was the youngest daughter, who was so lovely there was no end to her loveliness. So one day, it was on a Thursday evening, late at the fall of the year, the weather was so wild and rough outside, and it was so cruelly dark, and rain fell and wind blew, till the walls of the cottage shook again and again. There they all sat around the fire, busy with this thing and that. But just then, all at once, something gave three taps on the window pane. Then the father went out to see what was the matter, and when he got out of doors, what should he see but a great big white bear? Good evening to you, said the white bear. The same to you, said the man. Will you give me your youngest daughter? If you will, I'll make you as rich as you are now poor, said the bear. Well, the man would not be at all sorry to be so rich, but still he thought he must have a bit of a talk with his daughter first. So he went in and told them how there was a great white bear waiting outside who had given his word to make them so rich if he could only have the youngest daughter. The lassie said no outright. Nothing could get her to say anything else. So the man went out and settled it with the white bear that he should come again the next Thursday evening and get an answer. Meantime, he talked his daughter over and kept on telling her of all the riches they would get and how well off she would be herself. And so at last she thought better of it, and washed and mended her rags, made herself as smart as she could, and was ready to start. I can't say her packing gave her much trouble. Next Thursday evening came the white bear to fetch her, and she got upon his back with her bundle, and off they went. So when they had gone a bit of the way, the white bear said, Are you afraid? No, she wasn't. 
will mind and hold tight by my shaggy coat. And then there's nothing to fear, said the bear. So she rode a long, long way till they came to a great steep hill. There, on the face of it, the white bear gave a knock and a door opened, and they came into a castle where there were many rooms all lit up, rooms gleaming with silver and gold. And there too was a table ready laid, and it was all as grand as grand could be. Then the white bear gave her a silver bell, and when she wanted anything, she was only to ring it, and she would get it at once. Well, after she had eaten and drunk and evening wore on, she got sleepy after her journey, and thought she would like to go to bed. So she rang the bell, and she had scarce taken hold of it before she came into a chamber where there was a bed made, as fair and white as anyone would wish to sleep in, with silken pillows and curtains and golden fringe. All that was in the room was gold or silver. But when she had gone to bed and put out the light, a man came and laid himself alongside her. That was the white bear, who threw off his beast shape at night. But she never saw him, for he always came after she had put out the light, and before the day dawned he was up and off again. So things went on happily for a while, but at last she began to get silent and sorrowful. For there she went about all day, alone, and she longed to go home to see her father and mother and brothers and sisters. So one day, when the white bear asked what it was that she lacked, she said it was so dull and lonely there, and how she longed to go home to see her father and mother and brothers and sisters, and that was why she was so sad and sorrowful, because she couldn't get to them. Well, well, said the bear, perhaps there is a cure for all this, but you must promise me one thing, not to talk alone with your mother, but only when the rest are by to hear for she'll take you by the hand and try to lead you into a room alone to talk. But you must mind and not do that, else you'll bring bad luck on both of us. So one Sunday the white bear came and said, now they could set off to see her father and mother. Well, off they started, she sitting on his back, and they went far and long. At last they came to a grand house, and there her brothers and sisters were running about, out of doors at play. And everything was so pretty, t'was a joy to see. This is where your father and mother live now, said the white bear. But don't forget what I told you, else you make us both unlucky. No, bless her, she'd not forget. And when she reached the house, the white bear turned right about and left her. Then she went in to see her father and mother. There was so much joy, there was no end to it. None of them thought they could thank her enough for all she had done for them. Now they had everything they wished, as good as good could be, and they all wanted to know how she got on where she lived. Well, she said, it was very good to live where she did. She had all she wished. What she said besides, I don't know, but I don't think any of them had the right end of the stick or that they got much out of her. But so in the afternoon, after they had done dinner, all happened as the white bear had said. Her mother wanted to talk with her alone in her bedroom. But she minded what the white bear had said and wouldn't go upstairs. 
Oh, what we have to talk about will keep, she said, and put her mother off. But somehow or other, her mother got round her at last, and she had to tell her the whole story. So she said how every night, when she had gone to bed, a man came and lay down beside her as soon as she had put out the light, and how she never saw him because he was always up and away before the morning dawned, and how she went about woeful and sorrowing, for she thought she should so like to see him, and how all day long she walked about there alone, and how dull and dreary and lonesome it was. My, said her mother, it may well be a troll you slept with. But now I'll teach you a lesson how to set eyes on him. I'll give you a bit of candle which you can carry home in your bosom. Just light that while he's asleep, but take care not to drop the tallow on him. Yes, she took the candle and hid it in her bosom, and as night drew on, the white bear came and fetched her away. But when they had gone a bit of the way, the white bear asked if all hadn't happened as he had said. Well, she couldn't say it hadn't. Now, mind, said he, if you've listened to your mother's advice, you've brought bad luck on us both, and then all that has passed between us will be as nothing. No, she said. She hadn't listened to her mother's advice. So when she reached home and had gone to bed, it was the old story over again. There came a man and lay down beside her, but at dead of night, when she heard he slept, she got up and struck a light, lit the candle, and let the light shine on him. And so she saw that he was the loveliest prince one ever set eyes on, and she fell so deeply in love with him on the spot that she thought she couldn't live if she didn't give him a kiss there and then. And so she did. But as she kissed him, she dropped three hot drops of tallow on his shirt, and he woke up. What have you done, he cried. Now you have made us both unlucky, for had you held out only this one year, I would have been freed. For I have a stepmother who has bewitched me, so that I am a white bear by day and a man by night. But now all ties are snapped between us. Now I must set off from you to her. She lives in a castle which stands east of the sun and west of the moon. And there, too, is a princess with a nose three ells long, and she's the wife I must have now. She wept and took it ill, but there was no hope for it. Go he must. Then she asked if she mightn't go with him. No, she mightn't. Tell me the way, then, she said, and I'll search you out. That, surely, I may get leave to do. Yes. She might do that, he said, but there was no way to that place. It lay east of the sun and west of the moon, and thither she'd never find her way. So next morning when she woke up, both prince and castle were gone, and then she lay on a little green patch in the midst of the gloomy thick wood, and by her side lay the same bundle of rags she had brought with her from her old home. So when she had rubbed the sleep, out of her eyes and wept till she was tired. She set out on her way and walked many, many days till she came to a lofty crag. Under it sat an old hag and played with a golden apple which she tossed about. 
Here the lassie asked if she knew the way to the prince, who lived with his stepmother in the castle that lay east of the sun and west of the moon, and who was to marry the princess with a nose three ells long. How did you come to know about him? asked the old hag. But maybe you are the lassie who ought to have had him. Yes, she was. So, it's you, is it? said the old hag. Well, all I know about him is that he lives in the castle that lies east of the sun and west of the moon, and thither you'll come, late or never. But still, you may have the loan of my horse, and on him you can ride to my next neighbor. Maybe she'll be able to tell you, and when you get there, just give the horse a switch under the left ear and beg him to be off home. And stay, this gold apple may you take with you. So she got up upon the horse and rode a long, long time till she came to another crag under which sat another old hag with a gold carding comb. Here the lassie asked if she knew the way to the castle that lay east of the sun and west of the moon. And she answered, like the first old hag, that she knew nothing about it except it was east of the sun and west of the moon. And thither you'll come, late or never. But you shall have the loan of my horse to my next neighbor. Maybe she'll tell you all about it. And when you get there, just switch the horse under the left ear and beg him to be off home. And this old hag gave her the golden carding comb. It might be she'd find some use for it, she said. So the lassie got up on the horse and rode a far, far away and a weary time. And so at last she came to another great crag, under which sat another old hag spinning with a golden spinning wheel. Here too she asked if she knew the way to the prince, and where the castle was that lay east of the sun and west of the moon. So it was the same thing over again. Maybe it's you who ought to have had the prince, said the old hag. Yes, it was. But she too didn't know the way a bit better than the other two. East of the sun and west of the moon it was, she knew, and that was all. And thither you'll come, later never. But I'll lend you my horse, and then I think you'd best ride to the east wind and ask him. Maybe he knows those parts and can blow you thither. But when you get to him, you need only give the horse a switch under the left ear, and he'll trot home by himself. And so, too, she gave her the gold spinning wheel. Maybe you'll find a use for it, said the old hag. Then on she rode, many, many days, a weary time, before she got to the east wind's house. But at last she did reach it. And then she asked the east wind if he could tell her the way to the prince, who dwelt east of the sun and west of the moon. Yes, the east wind had often heard tell of it, the prince and the castle, but he couldn't tell the way, for he had never blown so far. But if you will, I'll go with you to my brother, the west wind. Maybe he knows, for he's much stronger. So if you will just get on my back, I'll carry you thither. So she got on his back, and I should just think they went briskly along. So when they got there, they went into the west wind's house, 
and the east wind said the lassie he had brought was the one who ought to have had the prince who lived in the castle east of the sun and west of the moon. And so she had set out to seek him and how he had come with her and would be glad to know if the west wind knew how to get to the castle. Nay, said the west wind. So far I've never blown, but if you will, I'll go with you to our brother, the south wind, for he's much stronger than either of us, and he has flapped his wings far and wide. Maybe he'll tell you. You can get on my back, and I'll carry you to him. So she got on his back, and so they travelled to the south wind, and weren't so very long on the way, I should think. When they got there, the west wind asked him if he could tell her the way to the castle that lay east of the sun and west of the moon, for it was she who ought to have had the prince who lived there. You don't say so. That's she, is it? said the south wind. Well, I've blustered about in most places in my time, but so far have I never blown. But if you will, I'll take you to my brother the north wind. He's the oldest and the strongest of the whole lot of us, and if he doesn't know where it is, you'll never find anyone in the world to tell you. You can get on my back, and I'll carry you thither. So she got on his back, and away he went from his house at a fine rate. And this time, too, she wasn't long on her way. So when they got to the north wind's house, he was so wild and cross, cold puffs came from him a long way off. Last you both, what do you want? He roared out to them, ever so far off, so that it struck them with an icy shiver. Well, said the south wind, you needn't be so foul-mouthed, for here I am, your brother, the south wind, and here is a lassie who ought to have had the prince who dwells in the castle that lies east of the sun and west of the moon. And now she wants to ask you if you ever were there, and can tell her the way, for she would be so glad to find him again. Yes, I know well enough where it is, said the north wind. Once in my life I blew an aspen leaf thither. But I was so tired I couldn't blow a puff for ever so many days after. But if you really wish to go thither, and aren't afraid to come along with me, I'll take you on my back and see if I can blow you thither. Yes, with all her heart, she must, and would get thither if it were possible in any way. And as for fear, however madly he went, she wouldn't be at all afraid. Very well, then, said the north wind. But you must sleep here tonight, for we must have the whole day before us if we are to get thither at all. Early next morning, the north wind woke her and puffed himself up and blew himself out and made himself so stout and big it was gruesome to look at him. And so off they went high up through the air as if they would never stop till they got to the world's end. Down here, below, there was such a storm, it threw down long tracks of wood in many houses, and swept over the great sea. So they tore on and on, no one can believe how far they went, and all the while they still went over the sea, and the north wind got more and more weary, and so out of breath, he could scarce bring out a puff, and his wings drooped and drooped, till at last he sunk so low 
but the crests of the waves dashed over his heels. Are you afraid? said the north wind. No, she wasn't. But they weren't very far from land, and the north wind had still so much strength left in him that he managed to throw her up on the shore under the windows of the castle, which lay east of the sun and west of the moon. But then he was so weak and worn out, he had to stay there and rest many days before he could get home again. The next morning, the lassie sat down under the castle window and began to play with a golden apple, and the first person she saw was the long nose who was to have the prince. What do you want for your golden apple, you lassie, said the long nose, and threw up the window. It's not for sale, for gold or money, said the lassie. If it's not for sale for gold or money, what is it that you will sell it for? You may name your own price, said the princess. Well, if I may get to the prince who lives here and be with him tonight, you shall have it, said the lassie whom the north wind had brought. Yes, she might. That could be done. So the princess got the golden apple. But when the lassie came up to the prince's bedroom at night, he was fast asleep. She called him and shook him, and between whiles she wept sore. But all she could do, she couldn't wake him up. Next morning, as soon as day broke, came the princess with a long nose and drove her out again. So in the daytime she sat down under the castle windows and began to card with her carding comb, and the same thing happened. The princess asked what she wanted for it, and she said it wasn't for sale for gold or money, but if she might get leave to go up to the prince and be with him that night, the princess should have it. When she went up she found him asleep again, and all she called and all she shook and wept and prayed, she couldn't get life into him. And as soon as the first grey peep of day came, then came the princess with a long nose and chased her out again. So in the daytime, the lassie sat down outside under the castle window and began to spin with her golden spinning wheel, and that too the princess with the long nose wanted to have. So she threw up the window and asked what she wanted for it. The lassie said, as she had said twice before, it wasn't for sale for gold or money. But if she might go to the prince who was there and be with him alone that night, she might have it. Yes, she might do it, and welcome. But now, you must know that there were some good folk who had been carried off thither, and as they sat in their room, which was next to the prince, they had heard how a woman had been in there, and wept and prayed and called to him two nights running, and they told that to the prince. That evening, when the princess came with her sleepy drink, the prince made as if he had drunk it, but threw it over his shoulder, for he could guess it was a sleepy drink. So when the lassie came in, she found the prince wide awake, and then she told him the whole story how she had come thither. Ah, said the prince, you've just come in the nick of time, for tomorrow is to be our wedding day. But now I won't have the long-nosed princess and you are the only woman in the world who can set me free. I'll say I want to see what my wife is fit for, and beg her to wash the shirt which has the three spots of tallow on it. She'll say yes, for she doesn't know to see who put them there. 
but that's a work only for good folk and not for such a pack of trolls. And so I'll say that I won't have any other for my bride than the woman who can wash them out and ask you to do it. So there was great joy and love between them all that night. But next day, when the wedding was to be, Prince said, First of all, I'd like to see what my bride is fit for. Yes, said the stepmother with all her heart. Well, said the prince, I've got a fine shirt which I liked for my wedding shirt, but somehow or other it has got three spots of tallow on it which I must have washed out, and I have sworn never to take any other bride than the woman who's able to do that. If she can't, she's not worth having. Well, that was no great thing they said, so they agreed, and she with the long nose began to wash away as hard as she could. The more she rubbed and scrubbed, the bigger the spots grew. Ah, said the old hag, her mother, you can't wash, let me try. But she hadn't long taken the shirt in hand before it got far worse than ever, and with all her rubbing and wringing and scrubbing, the spots grew bigger and blacker, and the darker and uglier was the shirt. Then all the other trolls began to wash, but the longer it lasted, the uglier the shirt grew, till at last it was black all over as if it had been up the chimney. Ah, said the prince, you're none of you worth a straw. You can't wash. Why, there outside sits a beggar girl. I'll be bound she knows how to wash better than the whole lot of you. Come in, he shouted. Well, in she came. Can you wash this shirt clean? said he. I don't know, she said. I think I can. And almost before she had taken it and dipped it into the water, it was as white as driven snow and whiter still. Yes, you're the lassie for me, said the prince. At that, the old hag flew into such a rage she burst on the spot, and the princess with a long nose after her, and the whole pack of trolls after her. At least I've never heard a word about them since. As for the prince and princess, they set all the good people free who'd been carried off and shut up there, and they took with them all the silver and gold and flitted away as far as they could from the castle that lay east of the sun and west of the moon. Hansel and Gretel in a great forest dwelt a poor woodcutter with his wife and his two children. The boy was called Hansel and the girl Gretel. He had little to bite and to break, and once, when great dearth fell on the land, he could no longer procure even daily bread. Now when he thought over this, by night in his bed, and tossed about in his anxiety. He groaned and said to his wife, What is to become of us? How are we to feed our poor children when we no longer have anything even for ourselves? I'll tell you what, husband, answered the woman. Early tomorrow morning, we will take the children out into the forest to where it is the thickest. There 
we will light a fire for them and give each of them one more piece of bread and then we will go to our work and leave them alone. They will not find the way home again and we shall be rid of them. No, wife, said the man, I will not do that. How can I bear to leave my children alone in the forest? The wild animals would soon come and tear them to pieces. Oh, you fool, said she, then we must all for die of hunger. You may as well plane the planks for our coffins. And she left him no peace until he consented. But I feel very sorry for the poor children, all the same, said the man. The two children had also not been able to sleep for hunger and had heard what their stepmother had said to their father. Gretel wept bitter tears and said to Hansel, Now all is over with us. Be quiet, Gretel, said Hansel. Do not distress yourself. I will soon find a way to help us. And when the old folks had fallen asleep, he got up, put on his little coat, opened the door below, and crept outside. The moon shone brightly, and the white pebbles which lay in front of the house glittered like real silver pennies. Hansel stooped and stuffed the little pocket of his coat with as many as he could get in. Then he went back and said to Gretel, Be comforted, dear little sister, and sleep in peace. God will not forsake us. And he lay down again in his bed. When day dawned, but before the sun had risen, the woman came and awoke the two children, saying, Get up, you sluggards. We are going into the forest to fetch wood. She gave each a little piece of bread and said, There is something for your dinner, but do not eat it up before then, for you will get nothing else. Gretel took the bread under her apron, as Hansel had the pebbles in his pocket. Then they all set out together on the way to the forest. When they had walked a short time, Hansel stood still and peeped back at the house, and did so again and again. His father said, Hansel, what are you looking at there and staying behind for? Pay attention and do not forget how to use your legs. Ah, father, said Hansel, I'm looking at my little white cat, which is sitting up on the roof and wants to say goodbye to me. The wife said, Fool, that is not your little cat. That is the morning sun which is shining on the chimneys. Hansel, however, had not been looking back at the cat, but had been constantly throwing one of the white pebble stones out of his pocket on the road. When they had reached the middle of the forest, the father said, Now, children, pile up some wood, and I will light a fire, that you may not be cold. Hansel and Gretel gathered brushwood together, as high as a little hill. The brushwood was lighted, and when the flames were burning very high, the woman said, Now, children, 
lay yourselves down by the fire and rest. We will go into the forest and cut some wood. When we have done, we will come back and fetch you away. Hansel and Gretel sat by the fire, and when noon came, each ate a little piece of bread. And as they heard the strokes of the wood axe, they believed that their father was near. It was not the wood axe, however, but a branch which he had fastened to a withered tree, which the wind was blowing backwards and forwards. And as they had been sitting such a long time, their eyes closed with fatigue and they fell fast asleep. When at last they awoke, it was already dark night. Gretel began to cry and said, How are we to get out of the forest now? But Hansel comforted her and said, Just wait a little until the moon has risen, and then we shall soon find the way. And when the full moon had risen, Hansel took his little sister by the hand and followed the pebbles which shone like newly coined silver pieces and showed them the way. They walked the whole night long and by break of day came once more to their father's house. They knocked at the door and when the woman opened it and saw that it was Hansel and Gretel, she said, You naughty children, why have you slept so long in the forest? We thought you were never coming back at all. The father, however, rejoiced, for it had cut him to the heart to leave them behind alone. Not long afterwards, there was once more great dearth throughout the land, and the children heard their mother saying at night to their father, Everything is eaten again. We have one half loaf left, and that is the end. The children must go. We will take them further into the wood, so they will not find their way out again. There is no other means of saving ourselves. The man's heart was heavy, and he thought, It would be better for you to share the last mouthful with your children. The woman, however, would listen to nothing that he had to say, but scolded and reproached him. He who says A must say B, likewise, and as he had yielded the first time, he had to do so a second time also. The children, however, were still awake and had heard the conversation. When the old folks were asleep, Hansel again got up and wanted to go out and pick up pebbles as he had done before, but the woman had locked the door and Hansel could not get out. Nevertheless, he comforted his little sister and said, Do not cry, Gretel. Go to sleep quietly. The good God will help us. Early in the morning came the woman and took the children out of their beds. Their piece of bread was given to them, but it was still smaller than the time before. On the way into the forest, Hansel crumpled his in his pocket and often stood still and threw a morsel on the ground. Hansel, why do you stop and look round? said the father. Go on. I am looking back at my little pigeon which is sitting on the roof and wants to say goodbye to me, answered Hansel. Fool, said the woman, that is not your little pigeon, 
that is the morning sun that is shining on the chimney. Hansel, however, little by little, threw all the crumbs on the path. The woman led the children still deeper into the forest, where they had never in their lives been before. Then a great fire was again made, and the mother said, Just sit there, you children, and when you are tired, you may sleep a little. We are going into the forest to cut wood, and in the evening, when we are done, we will come and fetch you away. When it was noon, Gretel shared her piece of bread with Hansel, who had scattered his, by the way. Then they fell asleep, and evening passed, but no one came to the poor children. They did not wake until it was dark night, and Hansel comforted his little sister and said, Just wait, Gretel, until the moon rises, and then we shall see the crumbs of bread which I have strewn about. They will show us our way home again. When the moon came, they set out, but they found no crumbs, for the many thousands of birds which fly about in the woods and fields had picked them all up. Hansel said to Gretel, We shall soon find the way, but they did not find it. They walked the whole night and all the next day too, from morning till evening, but they did not get out of the forest and were very hungry, for they had nothing to eat but two or three berries which grew on the ground. And as they were so weary that their legs would carry them no longer, they lay down beneath a tree and fell asleep. It was now three mornings since they had left their father's house. They began to walk again, but they always came deeper into the forest, and if help did not come soon, they must die of hunger and weariness. When it was midday, they saw a beautiful snow-white bird sitting on a bough, which sang so delightfully that they stood still and listened to it. And when its song was over, it spread its wings and flew away before them, and they followed it until they reached a little house, on the roof of which it alighted. And when they approached the little house, they saw that it was built of bread and covered with cakes but the windows were of clear sugar. We will set to work on that, said Hansel, and have a good meal. I will eat a bit of the roof, and you, Gretel, can eat some of the window. It will taste sweet. Hansel reached up above and broke off a little of the roof to try how it tasted, and Gretel leaned against the window and nibbled at the panes. Then. A soft voice cried from the parlour, Nibble, nibble, gnaw, who is nibbling at my house? The children answered, The wind, the wind, the heaven-born wind, and went on eating without disturbing themselves. Hansel, who liked the taste of the roof, tore down a great piece of it, and Gretel, pushed out the whole of one round window pane, sat down, and enjoyed herself with it. Suddenly, the door opened, and a woman as old as the hills, who supported herself on crutches, came creeping out. Hansel and Gretel were so terribly frightened that they let fall what they had in their hands. The old woman, however, nodded her head and said, Oh, you dear children, 
who has brought you here. Do come in and stay with me. No harm shall happen to you. She took them both by the hand and led them into her little house. Then good food was set before them, milk and pancakes with sugar, apples and nuts. Afterwards, two pretty little beds were covered with clean white linen, and Hansel and Gretel lay down in them and thought they were in heaven. The old woman had only pretended to be so kind. She was in reality a wicked witch who lay in wait for children and had only built the little house of bread in order to entice them there. When a child fell into her power, she killed it, cooked and ate it, and that was a feast day with her. Witches have red eyes and cannot see far, but they have a keen scent like the beasts and are aware when human beings draw near. When Hansel and Gretel came into her neighborhood, she laughed with malice and said mockingly, I have them, they shall not escape me again. Early in the morning, before the children were awake, she was already up, and when she saw both of them sleeping and looking so pretty, with their plump and rosy cheeks, she muttered to herself, That will be a dainty mouthful. Then she seized Hansel with her shriveled hand, carried him into a little stable, and locked him behind a grated door. Scream as he might, it would not help him. Then she went to Gretel, shook her till she awoke, and cried, Get up, lazy thing, fetch some water, and cook something good for your brother. He is in the stable outside, and is to be made fat. When he is fat, I will eat him. Gretel began to weep bitterly, but it was all in vain, for she was forced to do what the wicked witch commanded. And now, the best food was cooked for poor Hansel, but Gretel got nothing but crab shells. Every morning, the woman crept to the stable and cried, Hansel, stretch out your finger that I may feel if you will soon be fat. Hansel, however, stretched out a little bone to her, and the old woman, who had dim eyes, could not see it, and thought it was Hansel's finger, and was astonished that there was no way of fattening him. When four weeks had gone by, and Hansel still remained thin, she was seized with impatience and would not wait any longer. Now then, Gretel, she cried to the girl, stir yourself and bring some water. Let Hansel be fat or lean. Tomorrow I will kill him and cook him. Ah, how the poor little sister did lament when she had to fetch the water, and how her tears did flow down her cheeks. Dear God, do help us, she cried. If the wild beasts in the forest had but devoured us, we should at any rate have died together. Just keep your noise to yourself, said the old woman. It won't help you at all. Early in the morning, Gretel had to go out and hang up the cauldron with the water and light the fire. We will bake first, said the old woman. I have already heated the oven and kneaded the dough. She pushed poor Gretel out to the oven, from which flames of fire were already darting. Creep in, said the witch, and see if it is properly heated so that we can put in the bread. And once Gretel was inside, she intended to shut the oven and let her bake in it, and then she would eat her too. 
But Gretel saw what she had in mind and said, I do not know how I am to do it. How do I get in? Silly goose, said the old woman. The door is big enough. Just look, I can get in myself. And she crept up and thrust her head into the oven. Then Gretel gave her a push that drove her far into it and shut the iron door and fastened the bolt. Oh, then she began to howl quite horribly, but Gretel ran away and the godless witch was miserably burnt to death. Gretel, however, ran like lightning to Hansel, opened his little stable and cried, Hansel, we are saved. The old witch is dead. Then Hansel sprang like a bird from its cage when the door is opened. How they did rejoice and embrace each other and dance about and kiss each other. And as they had no longer any need to fear her, they went into the witch's house, and in every corner there stood chests full of pearls and jewels. These are far better than pebbles, said Hansel, and thrust into his pockets whatever could be got in. And Gretel said, I too will take something home with me, and filled her pinafore full. But now we must be off, said Hansel, that we may get out of the witch's forest. When they had walked for two hours, they came to a great stretch of water. We cannot cross, said Hansel. I see no foot plank and no bridge. And there's also no ferry, answered Gretel. But a white duck is swimming there. If I ask her, she will help us over. Then she cried, Little duck, little duck, dost thou see? Hansel and Gretel are waiting for thee. There's never a plank or bridge in sight. Take us across on thy back so white. The duck came to them, and Hansel seated himself on its back and told his sister to sit by him. No, replied Gretel, that will be too heavy for the little duck. She shall take us across, one after the other. The good little duck did so, and when they were once safely across and had walked for a short time, the forest seemed to be more and more familiar to them, and at length they saw from afar their father's house. Then they began to run, rushed into the parlour, and threw themselves round their father's neck. The man had not known one happy hour since he had left the children in the forest. The woman, however, was dead. Gretel emptied her pinafore until pearls and precious stones ran about the room, and Hansel threw one handful after another out of his pocket to add to them. Then all anxiety was at an end, and they lived together in perfect happiness. My tale is done, there runs a mouse. Whosoever catches it may make himself a big fur cap out of it. Cinderella The wife of a rich man fell sick, and when she felt that her end drew nigh, she called her only daughter to her bedside and said, Always be a good girl, and I will look down from heaven and watch over you. Soon afterwards, she shut her eyes and died and was buried in the garden, and the little girl went every day to her grave and wept and was always good and kind to all about her. And the snow spread 
a beautiful white covering over the grave. By the time the sun had melted it again, her father had married another wife. This new wife had two daughters of her own. They were fair in face, but foul at heart, and it was now a sorry time for the poor little girl. What does the good-for-nothing thing want in the parlour? said they. And they took away her fine clothes, and gave her an old frock to put on, and laughed at her, and turned her into the kitchen. Then she was forced to do hard work, to rise early, before daylight, to bring the water, to make the fire, to cook, and to wash. She had no bed to lie down on, but was made to lie by the hearth, among the ashes, and they called her Cinderella. It happened once that her father was going to the fair and asked his wife's daughters what he should bring to them. Fine clothes, said the first, pearls and diamonds, said the second. Now, child, said he to his own daughter, what will you have? The first sprig, dear father, that rubs against your hat on your way home said she. Then he bought for the first two the fine clothes and pearls and diamonds they had asked for, and on his way home, as he rode through a green copse, a sprig of hazel brushed against him, so he broke it off, and when he got home, he gave it to his daughter. Then she took it and went to her mother's grave and planted it there, and cried so much that it was watered with her tears, and there it grew and became a fine tree. And soon a little bird came and built its nest upon the tree, and talked with her and watched over her, and brought her whatever she wished. Now it happened that the king of the land held a feast which was to last three days, and out of those who came to it, his son was to choose a bride for himself, and Cinderella's two sisters were asked to come. So they called Cinderella and said, Now, comb our hair, brush our shoes, and tie our sashes for us, for we are going to dance at the king's feast. Then she did as she was told, but when all was done, she could not help crying, for she thought to herself she would have liked to go to the dance too. And at last, she begged her mother very hard to let her go. You, Cinderella, said she, you who have nothing to wear, no clothes at all, and who cannot even dance, you want to go to the ball? And when she kept on begging to get rid of her, she said at last, I will throw this basin full of peas into the ash heap, and if you have picked them all out in two hours' time, you shall go to the feast too. Then she threw the peas into the ashes, but the little maiden ran out at the back door into the garden and cried out, Hither, thither, through the sky, turtle doves and linnets fly, blackbird, thrush, and chaffins gay, hither, thither, haste away, one and all, come, help me quick, hasty, hasty, pick, pick, pick. Then first came two white doves, and next two turtle doves, and after them all 
the little birds under heaven came, and the little doves stooped their heads down and set to work, pick, 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 and then the others began to pick, 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 and picked out all the good grain and put it into a dish and left the ashes. At the end of one hour, the work was done and all flew out again at the windows. Then she brought the dish to her mother. But the mother said, No, no indeed, you have no clothes and cannot dance. You shall not go. And when Cinderella begged very hard to go, she said, If you can, in one hour's time, pick two of these dishes of peas out of the ashes, you shall go too. So she shook two dishes of peas into the ashes, and the little maiden went out into the garden at the back of the house, and called as before, and all the birds came flying, and in half an hour's time all was done, and out they flew again. And then Cinderella took the dishes to her mother, rejoicing to think that she should now go to the ball. But her mother said, It is all of no use. You cannot go. You have no clothes and cannot dance, and you would only put us to shame. And off she went with her two daughters to the feast. Now when all were gone and nobody left at home, Cinderella went sorrowfully and sat down under the hazel tree and cried out, Shake, shake, hazel tree, gold and silver over me. Then her friend, the bird, flew out of the tree and brought a gold and silver dress for her and slippers of spangled silk. And she put them on and followed her sisters to the feast. But they did not know her. She looked so fine and beautiful in her rich clothes. The king's son soon came up to her and took her by the hand and danced with her and no one else. And he never left her hand. But when anyone else came to ask her to dance, he said, This lady is dancing with me. Thus they danced till a late hour of the night, and then she wanted to go home. And the king's son said, I shall go and take care of you to your home for he wanted to see where the beautiful maid lived. But she slipped away from him, unawares, and ran off towards home. And the prince followed her. Then she jumped up into the pigeon house and shut the door. So he waited till her father came home and told him that the unknown maiden who had been at the feast had hidden herself in the pigeon house. But when they had broken open the door, they found no one within. And, as they came back into the house, Cinderella lay, as she always did, in her dirty frock by the ashes, for she had run as quickly as she could through the pigeon house and on to the hazel tree, and had there taken off her beautiful clothes and laid them beneath the tree, that the bird might carry them away, and had seated herself amid the ashes again in her little old frock. The next day, when the feast was held again, and her father, mother, and sisters were gone, Cinderella went to the hazel tree, and all happened as the evening before. The king's son 
who was waiting for her, took her by the hand and danced with her. And when anyone asked her to dance, he said as before, This lady is dancing with me. When night came, she wanted to go home, and the king's son went with her. But she sprang away from him all at once into the garden behind her father's house. In this garden stood a fine, large pear tree. Cinderella jumped up into it without being seen. Then the king's son waited till her father came home and said to him, The unknown lady has slipped away, and I think she must have sprung into the pear tree. The father ordered an axe to be brought, and they cut down the tree, but found no one upon it. And when they came back into the kitchen, there lay Cinderella in the ashes as usual, for she had slipped down on the other side of the tree and carried her beautiful clothes back to the bird at the hazel tree and then put on her little old frock. The third day, when her father and mother and sisters were gone, she went again into the garden and said, Shake, shake, hazel tree, gold and silver over me. Then her kind friend the bird brought a dress still finer than the former one, and slippers which were all of gold. And the king's son danced with her alone, and when anyone asked her to dance, he said, This lady is my partner. Now when night came, she wanted to go home, and the king's son would go with her, but she managed to slip away from him, though in such a hurry that she dropped her left golden slipper upon the stairs. So the prince took the shoe and went the next day to the king, his father, and said, I will take for my wife the lady that this golden shoe fits. Then both the sisters were overjoyed to hear this, for they had beautiful feet, and no doubt they could wear the golden slipper. The eldest went first into the room where the slipper was and wanted to try it on, and the mother stood by. But her big toe could not get into it, and the shoe was altogether much too small for her. Then the mother said, Never mind, cut it off. When you are queen, you will not care about toes. You will not want to go on foot. So the silly girl cut her big toe off and squeezed the shoe on and went to the king's son. Then he took her for his bride and rode away with her. But on their way home, they had to pass by the hazel tree that Cinderella had planted. And there sat a little dove on the branch singing, Back again, back again, look to the shoe. The shoe is too small and not made for you. Prince, prince, look again for thy bride, for she's not the true one that sits by thy side. Then the prince looked at her foot and saw by the blood that streamed from it what a trick she had played him. So he brought the false bride back to her home and said, This is not the right bride. Let the other sister try and put on the slipper. Then she went into the room and got her foot into the shoe, all but the heel, which was too large. But her mother squeezed it in till the blood came and took her to the king's son, and he rode away with her. But when they came to the hazel tree, the little dove sat there still and sang as before. Then the king's son looked down and saw that the blood streamed from the shoe, so he brought her back again also. 
This is not the true bride, said he to the father. Have you no other daughters? Then Cinderella came, and she took her clumsy shoe off and put on the golden slipper, and it fitted as if it had been made for her. And when he drew near and looked at her face, the prince knew her and said, This is the right bride. Then he took Cinderella on his horse and rode away. And when they came to the hazel tree, the white dove sang, Prince, Prince, take home thy bride, for she is the true one that sits by thy side. Good night. <laughs>